With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. And welcome to another episode of Chatty Broads with Becca and Jess. Uh, broads. Well, how good day, good day. Good day to you, Becca. Good day, broads. What a lovely day it is. When is this dropping? Again, timestamping. I know we have October to. 10th. I know we have to timestamp because the Bachelorette will be happening. God knows Shit. what drama is going on Shit. right now. We could be in the middle of Bachelor Bachelorette hell, and we have no idea because today, I hope. I sure hope so. I sure hope so. <laughs> we'll live for that drama. But uh, today is again Saturday, October tenth. Um, it's a cozy dreary day outside and i'm digging it finally not 100 and something degrees. it's fantastic um, i'm so cozy right now and i'm very excited and we're taking a break from bachelorette stuff yes um so we have a guest on today we'll just jump right into so it so excited it was ellie hi bro welcome hi ellie welcome. <laughs> okay so how ellie and i first i found her instagram oh, we love instagram friends yeah, that's the one thing I think is really cool about social media. Um, but I found her when we were, or I stumbled upon her page when you were doing like a live with, was it hashtag foster yes, care? hashtag foster care, uh-huh. Yeah. And I had already messaged you like months back, right? Yes. Or or you, fo- I don't know if you messaged me, but you think you followed me No, or I did. No, I had messaged you because I, that was why it was so funny because I didn't actually, I'm not, well, Thanks, thank you for nothing. I'm now, I'm now Batch Nation. Um, <laughs> Sorry which about that. I had gone my whole life not being, thank you. Um, but someone like sent me a story that you had done months before we connected. Uh-huh. And I think we connected like over a year ago now. But months before that, you had done a story talking about how you and Gray wanted to foster. Yes. And said something to the effect of, you know, I... I don't know if I could like you were talking about age and so I sent a clarifying message like hey yes you can or something to that effect but I didn't expect to hear back from you yeah and I didn't that's right (laughs) but then you saw me um doing a live and then I remember your message was like oh my gosh I just saw this um which is so funny because I don't usually watch lives like I almost never mm-hmm. I like they'll pop up on my story do you not watch them because you don't want people like I always am like oh my god my name pops up did you oh, oh it doesn't pop up I I'm guess a, I'm it's definitely afraid of being yeah. the only person there yes 100 that makes you me feel like oh my god hello and you're like yeah. oh god it's just me now i feel like i have to talk but i can't but also they're usually life. boring like they're usually someone being like so like yeah whatever i don't know i just don't personally find them interesting but then i clicked on the hashtag foster care one and they were having a riveting discussion <laughs> um they were yeah talking about like which we're gonna get into all this but they were talking about like white saviorism and fostering and adopting and talking about white people adopting black children and they were both of them were just going off and i was like wow we love to see it and then i clicked <laughs> on ellie and then i clicked on your profile saw you're following me whatever yes. but anyway all that being said i've loved following along and i find your 
story fascinating just of how you came to adopt your two children and your journey in fostering. And then like the more that I've sort of gotten to know you via the internet, the more like it's, you know, life is always more complicated than it appears on the internet, but even the more interesting it's gotten Mm -hmm. about your story. So excited well, to talk about thank you Becca that. and Jess for having yes, me um, this is my first time doing a recorded <laughs> podcast so really yes yeah, so oh my what, god I'm yes. so honored <laughs> what I lack in experience I make up for in excitement I'm very excited and, and it's fun funny because I have a pretty intimate following but I have a lot of broads there's nice. some broads yes. in the house shout and, out to the broads yes I am glad there's some crossover okay so you started out fostering when you were how old again 21 Damn. Um, so I'm a San Diego native. To give you guys some yeah, yeah, yeah. geographical okay, okay. reference. Um, born and raised. Born and raised San Diegan. Um, originally from Bonita, which is like a small, very small, like horse town, as far south as you can get in San Diego before the border. Mm-hmm. Um, but very suburban, like small town suburbia in every single way. Um, but transitioned into Coronado schools mm-hmm. when I was in the sixth grade. And I people won't appreciate that context unless they understand kind of anything about San Diego or what Coronado is. And geographically, Coronado is an island mm-hmm. off of the coast of San Diego. It's actually a peninsula, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> yeah, but It's called Coronado, Coronado island, island, but it's a peninsula. It's a peninsula. <laughs> okay, so you didn't have to take a boat to school every day. Then. No, not quite. Um, and my parents decided that this is, there's so much white privilege in this statement, but they decided that I needed to go to better schools. And so they commuted me every single day to these better wow. schools, um, which was only like 25 minute drive. It's not like any big thing. But Coronado is, and always has been for me, and probably always will be a culture shock just because it is so, so white picket fence, small town suburbia meets like, Real Housewives meets like the Truman Show. Yeah, like <laughs> it's kind of all of that. Um, and I'm I'm actually very. Um, I feel like we're, like H not HG, HGTV <laughs> not HGTV TLC and all of them are like sitting on gold oh, untapped like, untapped the Real Housewives gold. of Coronado. I don't understand how that's never <gasps> happened. And I'm honestly. Like, just is dropping a hint right now. If yeah. anybody needs new <laughs> content, Coronado is the content. And so it's weird now, my relationship with Coronado, is, and I'll talk about it, um, but it has evolved so much because my mom and stepdad and sister are there. And in that way, you know, they're going to be there forever. And yeah. so in that way, it's always going to be home. Um, just so for some context, from sixth to eighth grade, I got commuted over to the island. <laughs> um, and then in the eighth grade, I lost my dad. So mm. my my mom was climbing the corporate ladder to become a partner in a law firm. She's an extreme badass. Um, I say it's the hardest relationship I've ever had because her and I we butt heads like it's it's hard it's work to be you know in a good place with my mom but it's also the best relationship I've ever had and I Mm -hmm. admire her so much and she is a badass I mean she has been named all of the thing good things that lawyers can be named she is um just an incredible woman 
you know, leader in a partnership that's dominated or a, you know, a partner in a uh, law firm that's dominated by mm-hmm. men partnerships. Mm-hmm. And but she was building that for herself. And my dad, who had um, retired from the Navy when I was very young, was kind of for lack of a better descriptor, um, that heteronormative, you know, mom figure Mm -hmm. to my sister and I. And he did all of the everything, you know, all of the back and forth to school, all of the practices, all of all of that. And he did it so well. And it worked like my parents relationship was like a well oiled machine when it came to came to that front, because it got everybody taken care of in the house. And, you know, uh, when he died suddenly, New Year's Eve, mm. 2000, 2009 going into 2010, so the end of a decade, um, he had a heart attack and died the same way that his dad did. And mm. it was so unexpected and it just shattered the American dream that my parents had built for us. Mm. You know, they they worked so hard to build this life for us. And we had everything. We had the pool in the backyard. We had the swing set. We had, you know, just all of it. It was the quintessential American dream. And it was over. And that was really, really hard. And my mom had to now become not just superwoman in the workplace, but also superwoman at home and also grieve her husband and everything else that had happened you know, very quickly and also be a rock for my sister and I. My sister, it was the day after her seventh birthday. Mm. So she was literally seven, not even. And I was 12 going on 13. And it was just, yeah, it was not, it was not cute. It was really, really bad. (laughs) And so my mom's solution was she knew that she wanted to keep us in the school district that she had, you know, and so she decided that she was going to buy a condo in Coronado and sell my childhood home in Bonita. But, and you know what? It is what it is. Like that is what happened. That's the story. That's how it goes. But it was definitely, um, a lot, (laughs) you know, I was now, geographically in a new place I was now not living in the home that I had lived in my entire life I was now immersed in the Coronado culture in a way that you are not immersed in when you're being picked up at 3 p.m by your dad at the curb of you know I was going into high school I was prepubescent I was spiraling emotionally and um, my mom was at work from seven to seven And so she bought a condo and she bought me a bike and I biked to school and I went from being like my dad ran my sister and I like he was still in the Navy. Like he never he lived and died his Navy career. And and that was like his next project, his next assignment. And so over his dead cold body would I ever get into anything that wasn't like extremely organized? And so in that way, I was extremely shielded. Mm. And incredibly, I would say, I don't, I was still playing Barbies in the eighth grade. Like, Mm. I mean, these girls were like doing the things with the boys. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go home and read my books and play with my Barbies. And like, I, it was a huge culture shock because I now had no 
no naval commander over me. I was just kind of biking to school and could be friends with who I wanted to, could have whoever I wanted to over, mm. could, you know, it was like my condo in the city, yeah. um, <laughs> which, which for a very short period of time before it was not funny, it, it was funny and mm. it was fun and it was all the things. Um, but so that was kind of my how I got, you know, to not just be a Coronado schoolgoer, but a Coronado um, live dweller? Resident. <laughs> resident. So <laughs> resident of Coronado. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that, where from there to then you starting to foster at 21. Yes. Like what took place so, during that time? And I know you've also mentioned that you had a really difficult time during high school. And then also then that you were living two years abroad. What? How did all that fit in? Right. So basically... That kind of gives some context of my childhood and all of the, you know, the precursors yeah. to being in a position of being like not set up for a good high school experience. Kind of everything yeah. that you could have <laughs> not go well mm -hmm. before high school was was not going well. Mm -hmm. And so I had a really hard time. At first, I didn't. So when I got back to school after my dad's death, I had taken three weeks off. The humanities teacher had done the favor of telling the entire class mm. that, you know, hey, Ellie's dad has died. So if you, which, okay, don't, if you're a teacher, don't do that. <laughs> um, and so if you are, you know, if you think of it, be nice to her, show her some, you know, kindness. I don't, I don't know. But I was a celebrity. Mm -hmm. Like these, I went from being like an absolute nobody to being like, just for that week, because yeah. it was like old news by next week, you know, but sure. for that week, it was like, oh, Ellie, come sit with us. Oh, Ellie, how are you doing? Oh, Ellie, I love your bow. Yeah. Like I had like gone to Forever 21 and gotten a whole new like dad's <laughs> dead look. <laughs> um, and Complete with the sequence. Yeah, like. there was, yeah, big, just so, so many questionable fashion choices in that attire, but I was ready. <laughs> I was ready to go back to school. And so very soon after, I mean, I'm talking weeks after my dad's death, I started getting invited to the, and I, I use air quotes for those of you that are not watching. I hope you're not. I hope you're listening. <laughs> this whole podcast, YouTube. Uh, you're looking, you got you got a matching set going. Like, please. <laughs> um, anyways, um, I lost my train of thought. Where was I? At school. Yeah, only celebrity. like three weeks later, you're saying. Oh, yeah. I was just like invited to go be... At a popular girls' party. Okay, I knew that's what you can use in the yes, air quotes. The right? air there we quotes. go. There like, you go. There, because there, in Coronado, the cool kid. Yes, yeah, the cool kid. And in Coronado, and they would completely reject this sentiment. And I'm sure that someone's going to listen to it and be like, I can't believe she said that. But I am from Coronado, and that is not true. <laughs> but I would just like to say that they hold like roles in very high regard, mm. and then they pretend not to. And we all know that. Like, we all know communities like that mm -hmm. like orange county other, yeah yeah yes there we Born go and raised, baby yes and mm -hmm. where they pretend like it's not super codependent on who you hang out with but it mm -hmm. absolutely is mm -hmm. and i for i mean i was not cool i was not a cool girl in elementary school i was not a cool girl in middle school and i was getting invited to like this cool girl party that my dad would have never let me go to. I mean, like, I can hear him laughing. And I'm like, well, he shouldn't have died, buddy. I'm, I'm going tonight. Um, and Jokes on you. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, 
you know, really uh, hands-on learning all about things like alcohol and blowjobs and just really, you know, immersing myself in the You're getting that real-life experience. Real-life experience. And, like, I did not know what those things were, folks. Yeah, no, I didn't either when I was, like, in eighth grade. Yes. Same. When you're talking about Barbies in eighth grade, I was like, oh, I see her. I feel her. Yeah, and I'm, like, hearing about so-and-so getting fingered for the first time. I'm like, is she okay? (laughs) Is she fine? I remember someone saying something about somebody getting a boner, and I was like, oh, my God. And I was like, I don't know what that is. (laughs) Yeah, that's wild. (laughs) You just have no concept. Right. That's so, like, Clint. (laughs) Right. Well, Broads, we got to pause for a second. Here's the thing. If you're working from home right now, or maybe you're just forever working from home these days, you know how important it is to make sure your workspace is dialed. No unfolded laundry in the corner, no noisy upstairs neighbors. Unfortunately, you can't always control those things. But one thing you can control is making sure your cats, more specifically the smell of your kitty litter box, isn't intruding on your workspace. Mm-hmm. Being stuck at home all day with pets can definitely make you notice things you might not have noticed before, especially certain smells. And even when litter boxes are clean, traditional litter can be riddled with chemicals, which makes it smell artificial and awful. I hate those like synthetic fragrance smells. Oh, yeah. from some They're litter. very powerful. It's a yeah. no go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But pretty litter is the best cat litter I've found yet. Honestly, it doesn't contain any of the irritants or chemicals you'll find in traditional litter. And thanks to its ultra absorbent crystals, any odor is trapped instantly. It keeps your house smelling fresh no matter what. And I used to be so paranoid that my house would smell like a cat when we had people over. You all know those friends whose house just smells like cat litter. Mm-hmm, um, but now I know it always smells clean and it smells fresh. Thanks to Pretty Litter. Um, I don't have the kitty cats now, but my family has cats and I have carried my fair share of those heavy tubs of cat litter. And that's a no thanks for me. They're very heavy. With Pretty Litter, you'll never have to drag those uh, around the store out into your car anymore because it's delivered and shipped right to your front door in a small lightweight bag. Plus, shipping is always free. And the best part, Broads, the best part is that Pretty Litter detects early signs of potential illness in your cats and it changes colors to let you know. That's the best part, hands down. Mm-hmm. Do what I did and make the switch to Pretty Litter today by visiting prettylitter.com and use promo code chatty for 20% off your first order. That's prettylitter.com, promo code chatty for 20% off. Prettylitter.com, promo code chatty. So, Broads, growing up, I got braces twice. Thanks, Mom and Dad. I owe you a lot of cash. Um, but oh, yeah. No, so much cash, but not to be dramatic. But do you remember the metal pulling on your teeth, the rubber bands pulling on the metal, and then you not being able to eat any of that delicious food like bubble gum and candy when you're a kid? Um, not to mention the brackets rubbing up against your, oh, your just, the inside of your mouth. Just tearing the sides of your mouth apart. No. I, mean, I won't forget it. We're not being dramatic. It's It was no. a rough go, okay? I wish I had waited until dentistry had progressed a bit because the solutions for straightening your teeth now are substantially better compared to what they were. Uh, I mean, wow, technology. Am I right? Uh, If you've always wanted to straighten your smile, but you weren't sure how or where to start, you've got to give Candid Co. Clear Aligners a try. Yeah, Candid Co. has made straightening your teeth easier and more comfortable than ever before. Their clear aligners are so comfortable, you can hardly tell you have them on. Plus, they're removable. Other aligner programs keep you in the dark regarding your treatment also, but with Candid Co., you'll be assigned one licensed orthodontist who will not only determine your treatment plan, but they also monitor you through the entire process, which by the way, is just six 
months on average. Six months. Six months, Brats. I had friends who wore braces for three years straight, okay? Six months is going to be just flying by before you know it. And of course, because the treatment plan is shorter, that means you save big time. Candid Co. will cost thousands, thousands less than metal braces. Uh, The whole thing is such a no-brainer if you're looking to get that smile of your dreams. Start straightening your teeth today with Candid. And right now, all our listeners can save $75 on Candid Starter Kit. So that's a pretty good deal. Go to candidco.com slash chatty and use code chatty. That's candidco.com slash chatty and enter code chatty. Take advantage of this limited time offer and you're going to save $75 on your starter kit at candidco.com slash chatty. Enter code chatty. Um, And so I was living for the attention of it all. Let's just be honest. Yeah, of course. Um, And I was also just felt like it was such a cool new world. And it was such a perfect outlet to not be grieving, Mm -hmm. to not be working through my shit, to uh, be setting myself up to fall off of a cliff. Yeah, I mean, you're 13. How do you do you know how to go like deal with shit? No, it's like, no, (laughs) no one does. You don't. And so I um, was just, you know, it was, (laughs) I don't even know that this is where the timeline gets blurry. And I, I end in a five year disassociation period. No, (laughs) yes, but no. (laughs) Um, And I was just in a position where I was having a great time for maybe six months, maybe, maybe 10 months. I don't know. These were all my best friends. You know, we were all best friends and it was all fine until it wasn't because I started to become really manic mm. and I started to be real. I, I don't even, I don't know how to put it in, you know, words for a podcast, but because obviously I want to keep some stuff to myself and I want to share other stuff, yeah, but I, I was not okay. I was not okay, and of course I wasn't okay, because, (laughs) duh, but I was not okay, and I was starting to spiral, and so thus it began, the high school experience, Um, and I I, am genuine when I say that I don't remember a lot of it, and I love that there was actually an episode where you touched on disassociation. Um, Do you remember that episode, or do you remember talking about it? I don't know. Um, I probably did. I had, oh, maybe it went, was you. I have bipolar. I went through okay, disassociation. So never yeah. mind. This is actually, I, in the beginning of listening to the to the Couldn't podcast, tell our voices couldn't apart. Couldn't tell your voices people, apart. <laughs> people have that sometimes. And I always thought for like so long, which is why it makes sense in my mind that I thought it was you, Becca, that your voice was her voice and her voice was your <laughs> voice. Oh, that's so funny. So everything that came out of Jess's mouth for like the first <laughs> Becca ever. has bipolar and I was on The Bachelor. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I was like, this is confusing, but okay. Um, because I don't know why. I just, yeah. that was where I was at. But um, but yeah, no, we've we've talked about it on the podcast yes, before. And mm-hmm. so I was like, this is cool. This is new, you know, hearing about it. But I that was kind of the beginning of that for me. Mm-hmm. Wait, although I actually think I talked about that in we had a dating episode where I was talking about experiencing a breakup and like feeling like I wasn't in my body. Mm-hmm. Might have been that. I don't know. Anyway, just remember I, yeah, that. I, I, there's been a few times you guys have mentioned it. It's like, oh, I didn't have a word. I didn't know that that was a thing until someone was like, oh, you're describing dissociation. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a huge problem. The mm-hmm. fact that we don't have a word for it. It helps to put names yes. to things. Yes. It, yeah, it's very Words, validating. We were talking on another episode the other day about how powerful we were talking about pronouns and it's like mm-hmm. how powerful like a word is like mm-hmm. it, like it, this just it, it helps 
define it helps oh clarify gosh, yes. it helps settle so much but yeah no disassociation is definitely something that needs to be talked about more because yeah if you have this period during your high school where you are like yeah I don't you're like I'm in an interview and I, I'm telling you I don't remember mm-hmm. I remember that moment where all of a sudden I was recalling like a few years in college and then a, a few after and I'm like I think I have a really good memory and I don't remember anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then my doctor was like, "That's disassociation." Right. Well, I think Let's I was. Talk about yeah, it. I think I was like, twenty-two and yeah. like very much had done most of the work to be a stable adult human. Yeah. Without ever actually hearing that word assigned to what had mm-hmm. happened to me. Mm-hmm. I and I. It's funny because I feel like I had assigned words that weren't even words yeah. to my experience, just to be like, "Oh, this is what I was doing," because there was no language provided to me Um, and that was another huge reason why having all of this happen in Coronado was such a it was just not the community for something like that I also just wanted to clarify real quick for dissociation just for people listening so dissociation can be memory loss like exactly what you're talking about of certain time periods events people and personal information it can also be a sense of being detached from yourself and your emotions while you're experiencing them Mm -hmm. Uh, a blurred sense of identity um i guess part of it is just even inability to cope well with emotional or professional stress Mm mm-hmm Anyway, um, what's interesting is just while you were talking about that, I was realizing that there's there's a couple different ways that it can manifest itself, Mm -hmm. either like blacking out, like you've talked about, just straight up being like, I don't remember doing that. And then also sometimes just feeling a disconnection between what's happening to you Mm -hmm. while you're actually how am I how am I emotionalist in this traumatic situation right now? Why don't I feel anything? Or or even like I don't feel this. There's a the. The feeling of like, I don't feel real, like things don't feel real. Nothing yes. around me feels real right now. That's a very- or not, Yeah, not even understanding who like who you are as a person or mm-hmm. subscribing yourself to other people um, and kind of wow. taking on, yeah. you know, other yep. um, absorbing other energies or personalities. And so there's so much that's a whole that's a whole podcast episode. So we're yeah. going to kind of <laughs> skirt <laughs> through breathe, that. Yeah, yeah, breathe yeah. right by that. Um, but it was a really hard time. And I was for a while it was okay and then I think people started to notice that I was pretty manic anyways it went on and on and by the time that I'm going to skip a lot of stuff um to to get to the good stuff of what we're going to talk about today which is you know adulthood and my kiddos and all of that but um at the end of the day I didn't have any friends left and that was really devastating Mm. because I was already so far you know, in the dark. And I, I was kind of a freak show, you know, I was in the dark and I was also a little bit of a freak show. And, um, there was, you know, at the time this was kind of like what would have been my senior year if I hadn't dropped out. There were multiple suicide attempts. Mm. There were, um, just, you know, there was police involvement. There was, um, two pretty major car accidents that just because I didn't know up from down and I'm so fucking lucky that nobody got hurt or even walked away with a scratch because that could have been the end you know there could be no you know second part of this podcast and so that was really really hard and I ended up um I remember it was so weird because it was all of that I was going through and then 
also the rumors and everything that I was hearing through the grapevine of that small town that was just kind of the mm. that was the hardest part was hearing what people were saying or hearing you know just even going through the halls of my high school and seeing how people would look at me or not look at me um and I remember one day I was in history class it was October of what would have been my senior year so two months into the beginning of the school year and I was I, I don't know if it was assigned seating or how it happened but I was I was sat in front of um, kind of the queen bee of, you know, for lack of a better, mm-hmm. <laughs> the queen bee. And she was my, she used to be my friend. I think there was a period of a few weeks where we called each other best friends. And um, I knew that she didn't like me. She didn't say anything to me when I was, you know, was that in front of her for that couple of weeks. But I remember one day she was sick. I don't, I can't, I think maybe she had like a cold or something and I had something to offer her. I don't know if I had something in my bag. Cough drop, you know, cough, something. something. Yeah, yeah. I had something like that. And I remember like it took all of the courage in me to turn around and offer it and just be like, hey, like, do you need some of this? Because I have some of this. And she looked at me like so cruel and was just like, (laughs) no. And I turned back around in my seat and a few seconds later, the bell rang, switch classes and I like everybody had left the classroom. So I don't even remember. I ever, And I was just staring straight at the board with tears streaming mm. down my face, like com- like completely quiet. And the the history teacher comes up to me and is like, hey, Ellie, are you OK? Like completely unequipped to handle yeah. this. He's the history teacher <laughs> like he's not. And I was like, you know, I don't think I'm going to go here anymore. And he was like, oh, do you want to do you want to go to the, you know, to the, to the counselor's office? And we, you know, I'll see you tomorrow. And I was like no, I don't think I'm going to go here anymore. And I literally just left high school and never came back. Um, I was like, this isn't really working for me. This isn't really what I need. And ironically, that was actually the beginning of my healing. That Mm -hmm. was actually the beginning of, that was the first time that I made a decision for myself Mm -hmm. that worked. And it was incredibly unconventional. And everybody was like, yeah. So that's, you know, I think that a lot of people saw that as like, the end of me and it was actually the beginning of everything that I needed to do to be where I am right now. That's a good lesson right there. And so I left high school and then there was six months that I don't remember. So (laughs) um, there was a lot of, I think there was, yeah, there's a lot in that six months. And I know, obviously I know what happened through the lens of like, you know, I have people in my life that were there and I, you know, events and everything else. Not like it's like, but when I really the switch came back on and I became, you know, who I am, like started to become who I am today was the morning after my 18th birthday in March of um, March of 2014. So that would have been March of 2014. And I remember and this is like a good example on disassociation for everybody out there. I remember like my first memory, like that's really clear and that's been really congruent because from that memory all of my memories up until now are, are really congruent I have a really good you know understanding timeline, yeah. a timeline of all of that was the sound of the dryer going off mm. and it was like okay back to and I was doing laundry and I had this bright idea it was the morning after my 18th birthday I could do whatever the fuck I want that I was gonna move I didn't know where I was gonna move or what I was gonna do but I'm not not in this godforsaken town <laughs> and I um put all of the clothes that were in the dryer into a laundry basket (laughs) and bailed. I did do the courtesy of calling my mom halfway to San Francisco and letting her know that I would not be coming home. And 
she was of course you know concerned (laughs) um because that's incredibly manic um and i told her that i was going to reach out to um so i had what was really interesting about this season was yes there were pockets of extreme mental health but there was also pockets of extremely high functionality Mm -hmm. which is very normal you know now i know it's normal because now i have such a context of my diagnoses and i have such a context of like you know how people perform under the you know stressors that i was under but there was a lot of times where i was just quote unquote just a normal teenager you know babysitting people or going and you know being a part of youth group or Mm -hmm. whatever else that did account for a lot of my teenage years in a way that i'm like not even sure how that all fit Mm -hmm. but it did and that's just part of the human experience is you know it's so complicated and it's so multifaceted but i had a long-term relationship with a an individual who let me babysit her twins and who was really just and is a dear, dear friend of mine. And she really was just an incredible person. And she knew that I was struggling, but she trusted me with her kids like to the moon. And that level of trust was something that I lived for, Mm -hmm. you know, to just know, hey, you know, and you see and you've talked to my mom about how I'm struggling. And yet you would choose me over any other babysitter in this town. And she was kind of like a second mom to me in a lot of ways. Um, it's so funny because when I first like got to know her, she was so quirky and so just I tell her I'm like, I, I tell people like you're a little bit of an odd duck. But <laughs> I come to find out that she has like a double Ph.D. in like philosophy and theology and she's just smart as hell. So when you start talking to her in the domain of like what she knows, you're like, OK, I'm going to start taking notes now. Like, <laughs> But when she's just living her life, she's such a quirky person, but she also has such a depth about her. And um, anyways, I she had just moved up to the San Francisco area. Her family had just moved up to the San Francisco area. So she was my second phone call. And I was like, hey, I'm coming up to San Francisco. And she's like, oh, what for? Like, <laughs> for what? And I was like, I'm, I'm actually moving up this way. And she's like, okay. Um, yeah, I'll have the guest. Because um, they had they were living on a farm right outside of San Francisco in Petaluma. And there she had the guest house ready for me. Wow. And it was such an incredible saving grace. Oh, my wow. God. I There has been so many angels in this story. And I've not touched on any of them, but she is one of them. And there's just been so many hands in this story making it right. And I got there and she didn't, I mean, it wasn't, there wasn't an interrogation. It wasn't anything. She was just like, hey, if you're going to stay here, I'm going to need you to pay your way by watching the twins. And that's how you can do that. And you do whatever you need to do and stay as long as you want. This house is your house. And Mm -hmm. it was a godsend. And it really began that process for me. So I had um, probably my final manic stroke which ended up being the best thing I've ever done and I decided that I was going to be a photographer um I had no experience I had no context of why this felt like a good idea at the time but I went up to San Francisco with $2,500 in my savings my life savings Mm -hmm. of $2,500 and decided to spend it on a camera that I that I bought off Craigslist (laughs) (laughs) and I researched I did my research to find like what the best camera was and I met this guy in a Sacramento mall food court 
and he brought the camera he was totally legit and he was a hot shot i i told i always when i tell a story i always wish i got his name like i wish that i would because he was the big photographer the kind of photographer that says things like oh yeah my clients uh g- gifted me this and right i don't need right, it right, right, right. so i'm just trying to give it to somebody who wants it for a good deal it's <laughs> unopened untouched like he's like i just rather buy another lens with it well you you're know? so lucky that you got that guy and yes. not the guy who likes you know <laughs> yeah. stole some like half broken right. camera out of someone's car or some shit and he's like, like it's worth it i swear right exactly <laughs> and he looks at me and i mean it's just it's a look like it's a whole thing like i'm just this just this girl chilling in the room and he's like so like what lens are you planning to lo- use with it and i'm like doesn't doesn't come with a lens <laughs> 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 like this and that's like my whole savings and he legitimately i shit you not i told him a little bit about me and about like my vision and stuff he took the hundreds that i had just given them and gave me three of the hundreds back and said, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go to Best Buy, which is around the corner here. And you're going to get this lens and you're going to do this, this and this. And he was so sweet. Oh, that's so nice. Um, <laughs> and he. Yeah. Talk about an angel. I He's know. like, I'm going to look out for you. Yeah. And then I went um, and got my lens. It was pouring rain in Sacramento um, and just drove home with absolutely no money in my bank account with a brand new camera sitting on my passenger seat that I did strap in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you and me, baby. Um, by the grace of God and the angels that we speak of, I had a very successful family photography business three weeks later. Uh, and I had an I had a talent. I I had it in me. I I and I do, and it's my job today. And so it made it work for six years. And so it clearly, you know, was in me. But very quickly, with the help of YouTube um, and a lot of um, practice clientele, I was able to develop what I needed to develop. But that was kind of the beginning of not just having a job but having a stable income which was like more than my mom could have ever dreamed for me sure you know mm-hmm. like it was like beyond anybody's wildest dreams mm-hmm. and not to i mention was, like self self-driven right. or self-employed mm-hmm. i mean like yes big deal it was a huge turning of the page um and and within a matter of six months it was very much not like stable income. You can rent an apartment. You can do whatever you want. And I had kind of the whole world at my fingertips. And then I got an inquiry from a very weird email address um, from somebody that was saying that they wanted me to come to Africa, to Zimbabwe, and photograph like their orphanage for the sake of like them needing it for funds. Uh-huh. Okay. And I was very much washed in the wa- the water and drinking the Kool-Aid of Americanized Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, Is that since childhood? Was Were your parents Western? So, so my parents Christian, were, call that Western were very, yeah, Western Christians. <laughs> my parents were very washed in the water, but they didn't wash us in the water. Okay. And I found God through, at the time, uh, God and I are you know complicated complicated. ongoing yeah yeah. we're in a complicated relationship yes and I have so much to say about that again an entire episode's worth (laughs) to say about that but I found God or that version of God through through a a youth group um at at school right when my dad died Mm -hmm. and so I 
my whole life knew that my parents believed in God. We celebrated Christmas, but really didn't understand church or anything. I think we went like one Easter one time and that was it. But then I got my mom and sister back on the boat when I found out about this youth group and it was connected to a local church and we all Mm. started going together. I started serving there. I started teaching, you know, Bible study there. I started doing, you know, very heavily integrating myself in this, um, culture and really believing the doctrine that they were sharing with me because it was the first group to give me you know the the affection and attention that I wanted and that's really hard too because there's so much wrapped up in kind of the religious undertone of you know join us but also follow us um like we love you but conditionally that you love our doctrine type thing Mm -hmm. and so I was very much leading a double life of like a wrecking ball on the weekends and a church girl also on the weekends. I was able to rally on Sunday morning, you know, Um, and nobody would have guessed at church because I was able to assimilate so well. And that's, you know, very much my personality. Um, And so I was able to keep both those, you know, lives very separately, um, very separate rather. But so anyways, photography business was doing well. I had this opportunity to go. And my point to bringing up Christianity is that at the time, and as we know, and as I've heard Broads talk so much about, you know, going to Africa to do mission work is like the pinnacle of like Christian success. A hundred percent. Yeah. And it was major gold star, (laughs) major gold star. Mm -hmm. And it was this opportunity in my mind to redeem this trashed reputation that I had and which is so sad and so toxic and I just want to I just want to emphasize that I understand how toxic that was but I was also 18 and I shouldn't really have been allowed to do anything let alone go to Africa (laughs) but I did and I was there on and off um I had there was six trips total I also had the opportunity to visit um Mexico several times to do orphanage work down there basically what had happened was I did a good job the first time and I kept getting invited back to do different types of work um and it was all like in the domain of photography um it was two years before I was even introduced to the idea like I didn't even know it existed let alone that I was like on the other side of it to the idea of white saviorism or to the idea of um child exploitation through photography or Mm -hmm. the idea of like the conflict between you know doing a GoFundMe but using photos of children to do it I it was so far from my mind because in my mind it was so right that Mm -hmm. when I had when I heard it I think my turnaround time was was relatively quick compared to a lot of people because mm. I think a lot of people that are in it it's so hard to acknowledge like I'm in this and I need to get out of it well I, and like when I thought I was harming helping people I was harming people yes mm-hmm. yeah yeah but my turnaround time was was relatively quick it was a matter of of weeks not even months that I started to get down a rabbit hole online of this you know, ideology through accounts like I don't think No White Saviors was around at the time, but there were other like spin-offs of No White Savior. There was one called Savior Barbie. Oh yeah, I've seen it. It's yeah. amazing. Yes, where they kind of like I've do you never have, heard of Savior yeah, Barbie. Oh, like, kind of hilarious. Wanna, do you want to explain it? Yeah, I, Savior Barbie. It's just like written from her perspective. Okay. <laughs> and you know, it's like her. It's it's pictures of a Barbie like photoshopped into different places. Got like it. yeah, loved hanging out with like these. Yeah, orphan children this morning, like mm-hmm. blah, 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 with like, yeah, it's like satire. 
It's yeah. But you did have a fast turnaround, though, if that was weeks. I know like I was in deep for many years with (laughs) with with, you know, just like I I am doing this and it is selfless and, you know, all this. Yeah, 100 percent. I think, too, though, it's important, especially like when talking to people that are listening, that it is a lifelong process. You don't just get to get a gold star for learning really quickly. You have to not only acknowledge the damage that you've done, but also acknowledge and commit to a life of work. Would you you mind talking a little bit about like maybe... I think some of our listeners might not be super familiar with this concept. So maybe talking a little bit about um, like what you were doing and then like how certain things were like white saviors and kind of what that means and like why some things are damaging. If you, I mean, you don't have to yeah, go yeah. super into it. Maybe uh, uh, just like a brief. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't, for those like really, really vague, white saviorism is the concept that you as a white person can service black or POC people better because you are from a pla- coming from a place of privilege. You're going to see white saviorism rampant in the communities of mission work um, pretty much throughout any religious you know, context because you have a lot of different religions and religious sects of Christianity that um, that subscribe to the to the mission philosophy. Um, you're going to see it really anywhere, even you know, local missions where you're seeing you know people working in the downtown region or whatever. Anytime where there's an exchange of like you know a white person servicing someone who is not white and trying to get credit for it or trying to trying to, accepting some sort of a I don't want to say like, yeah, accepting praise for it, really, you know, taking a picture with or putting yourself in a position that may give you like you may experience praise as a result. Exactly. From it, right? You know, taking a picture with a black child and then allowing people to comment on that picture like you were so amazing, Yeah, mm-hmm. which is bleh, vomit, <laughs> vomit. Um, but I wasn't above it when I didn't know any better. Or even a good example, which I think we've talked about before, is like being a completely unqualified person. Yes, this is Correct. huge. Being this is someone huge. who has... Raising money to go over. Yes, being someone who doesn't actually have anything to offer besides your love to the children or mm-hmm. whatever. Like, why are you there? And then raising thousands of dollars for your flight, for your lodging, for whatever. For your food. For, yeah. For your pictures. Thousands of dollars for you to go there to like hug and love on some children but it's like what was that money being spent towards and what did you actually have to offer it was your experience that's what it was your experience and at the very least like okay so you hugged some children hung out with them for a week and then left forever and then what what is that child left with yeah you affirmed what they already they you know all of that self-esteem stuff that comes with you know not you know, for instance, like orphaned children, which we have, you know, obviously there are people that don't have children in America as well. So this is not exclusive to, you know, children that are abroad, but it's, they already have self-esteem issues and it's affirming that self-esteem or, issues. Attachment, it, uh, or abandonment yeah. issues, yeah. attachment issues, all of those things. And it's really affirming that. And I just had no context of any of this thing. And, and again, it was such new territory to me that when I heard about it for the first time, it was like, it was like learning a new language. It was like, what? I just remember just being so defensive. Mm-hmm. I was so angry the first time I heard about that because mm-hmm. I'm just like, how dare you question my intentions? I or am anyone's intentions. Or I am they a good wanna, person. Yeah. And it really like, I mean, talk about a fucking ego, like bending me over backwards because mm-hmm. having to be like, why am I having this reaction to this? And then realizing it was it was for me one of the biggest experiences was through an orphanage where all of a sudden it hit me when I was leaving. And I'm like, what are we doing to these kids 
every week a new group comes in. Mm-hmm. And then, but we get to post these photos. And yeah, it's exploiting yeah. these children for profit. And they, they, it's kind of, in a lot of contexts, the orphanages use the money that you bring in for your little vacation trip to right. feed these children. So it's almost like an exchange of goods, which is right. so fucked up. There's just no other way to put it. This is, you know, for anybody listening, this is something that's so so beyond reproach in terms of how inappropriate it is. And I just don't want that to be lost in translation. Yeah, of course. You know, as I talk about my, you know, my past experience and what I've learned from it. What I will say, and I, I struggle with even just in a casual, not recorded conversation saying this correctly, but what I will say is that obviously those two years that I was going back and forth did change me. Um and I saw things and I experienced things in my time that made me a very different person. It was also the continued progression of my healing after, you know, all that I had described that I went through. And it was just a lot of opportunity for growth in different ways. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it was directly linked to what was going on, you know, in my work or in my life. But it was um, it was you know, a period of two years. And so I was growing and changing. Yeah. And And, and you're acknowledging that that was for you. So that's the important part too. You're like this, it's not like you're like, I was able to help so many people and I impacted so many lives Mm -hmm. and I was just really doing the Lord's work for two years. Uh, Yeah. No. Um, (laughs) um, God bless their souls. Um, so sorry, I cut you off while no, you were doing no, that. But you no, were saying that it was no, a period of growing and then out, and then after yes. that two years, where yeah. did that then leave you? So it left me in a place of, okay, I know that I don't want to continue working abroad. I know that I want to be a fierce advocate for petitioning organizations and fundraising support that goes directly into these communities and that, you know, uplifts and rebuild these communities from the ground up that we trust you know these members of these communities enough with funds and with you know everything else so that they can build up their own communities if anything the only type of work that I believe and this is still super there's a lot to unpack here but the only time it ever really works is if you are offering to teach them how to do something right you know and that's not me I don't have anything to offer you know I'm 20 something years old but if you are a doctor and you can go and offer to teach them you know skill set that is could be considered an appropriate context in which you could go sure. and, and support them a farmer uh, maybe a far- teaching yeah i mean but there's amazing farmers and you know but that sure. exactly exactly something of that of that nature irrigation mm-hmm. let's say let's yes, some irrig- like random yes, like practical yes, yes. things mm-hmm. exactly but ultimately the goal should it, to, I've, I've heard this once before and i really like it to ask yourself if your work abroad is in the white the right pl- the white place yeah. <laughs> make sure it's not, not in, in the, the white place. place not in the white place the right place is to ask yourself is what i'm doing putting these people on a tra- trajectory to not need me mm-hmm. so that i can go back to wherever mm-hmm. the heck i came from and they're left more sustainable more equipped to live their lives without my hand in it mm-hmm. and that is a really good ch- you know checking of of where you're, if what sure. what you're doing is necessary or if it's not, and so um, I did that assessment and could honestly say that I, I was not needed. <laughs> um, I was being sent home, <laughs> and so I went home 
and knew and I canceled a ton of trips like there was a ton of upcoming stuff that I had been invited to I was even invited to Rio to document the orphan crisis during the Olympics oh wow and that was something that was I was going to Russia I had so many trips planned that I ended up canceling just because I needed to do more work on what I felt about this and um I remember one night after making the decision that I just wasn't going to be doing this anymore, that I was like, this is really a really sad from a place of the fact that I really thought that it was, I was still very much in like that God lingo, but like, you know, that Westernized Christianity God lingo of like, the Lord put it on my heart mm-hmm. to like be a mom through adoption. And I really did feel that way. And it mm-hmm. was something that had come up almost like testimony through the years of like my suicidality and everything else. Mm. And so I was very confused how these two worldviews were going to merge because I now was completely rejecting the idea that I would ever, you know, adopt through that, you know, that means. But then I was also sad because I've never really desired to have biological children. And I've always had a huge desire to, Mm -hmm. you know, have, have adopted children. And so I felt what I would then say, you know, the Lord, what I would now say, the universe put on my heart, like foster care, you should do foster care locally. And I was home in San Diego at this point, I think I'd been home for a couple weeks from a trip to Uganda. And I, I was just like foster care. I don't think I could do like, this is like a a conversation with me and God in the middle Mm -hmm. of the night. I was like, Mm -hmm. I don't think I could do that because I'm too young. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't, which by the way, that's a good indicator that I shouldn't have been in Africa servicing children because the fact that I thought I was too young to be servicing children wow. in the States, but not too young to be servicing children abroad is a good indicator that I was not in the right place. Um, yeah. But no, that's tea. Uh, then that's tea. Yes. <laughs> that's and, tea. But I, I just completely was like, no, that's not a thing. But yeah. what I did was because it felt like such a conviction I woke up the next morning and made a call to the county and said, you know, hi, I'm just wondering, I'm inquiring for in a few years, I would just love to know more about the process. And, you know, if there's anything that I can do to get involved with, you know, the county in the meantime type thing. And she kind of like went back and forth with like her desk mate or whatever. And she's like, yeah, we actually don't have like an age like we don't say you have to be this age to do it. I mean, obviously you have to be 18 But the reason why that's set up like that for context is because of something called kinship care, which um, Ah, kinship care is 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 family. And so if you're an 18 year old and your your sister is in foster care, they want your sister to be able to be your foster. That makes sense. Um, And with kinship care, the threshold of what you need to qualify is much, much lower than to be a non kinship foster parent. And so if sis is 18 and living in a one bedroom apartment, she could likely take custody of, you know, her sister, um, even if she didn't have all the money in the world, she didn't have a job, even, you know, they would help her. Mm -hmm. They would support her because in in foster care in general, and just as a, as a good rule of thumb, family preservation is everything, you know? And so that made sense, but it also made it so that I at 20 could go ahead and start the process to be approved by 21 with the stipulation that I would have to meet all of the much higher criteria of becoming a foster parent, a non-kinship foster Mm -hmm. parent. Um, the reason why, and people ask me this all the time, and it was actually one of the the questions that I got when I asked my followers to like 
you know, ask questions for this podcast was the reason why this worked was because of my photography business. I think mm. people hear my story, especially like the little sound bites of my story that go yeah. viral or whatever. And they're so genuinely confused how at 21 I was able to finance this. Yeah. And I think that it sometimes I see people getting a little shady about that. You know, they're like, oh, I've never seen it blatantly, but I'm sure as my story, you know, here, you know, catches more ears, um, which it has been recently just because we've had the opportunity to have, you know, amazing opportunities like this. I think that on, on its face, people will be like, I don't understand. You know, I definitely I definitely thought that, too. Mm-hmm. Not even a shady aspect. But I was just like, OK, yeah. Like, how is a 21 year old right. going to be able to like rent a home, right. you know, more than a one bedroom right. apartment or whatever? Mm-hmm. And I had already been a renter for three years at that point because I'd already had my business for three years. And so that was one of the the reasons why, you know, to clarify for anybody that has ever wondered about that, I was already very established in my career and I was already able to have a two bedroom apartment and pay my rent. And, you know, and I had everything that needed to be, you know, right for a child to come into it. Mm -hmm. And so when I was approved, I went through the process and stuff the social worker that came out to the house had the same exact thing that, that, you know, you're saying, Becca, which is that she didn't expect to see a house that was like perfectly set up and ready for a kiddo. And she didn't expect to to meet someone who was clearly ready to be a mom. But she expressed her excitement. She expressed that, you know, she you could tell she was a huge champion for this unconventional family dynamic. And then another thing that I want to talk about, too, that's really, really important in this conversation is the fact that we, especially in San Diego, but, you know, really everywhere, Los Angeles, hello, here we are, um, we need foster parents. And we need people who are willing to be unconventional foster parents. Mm -hmm. And anyone who has the audacity and that, you know, I don't say that lightly, to say that it needs to be, you know, a heteronormative married couple Mm -hmm. has no idea the crisis, the national crisis that we are facing in this country. in terms of how many foster youth we have that desperately need homes. And I just can't emphasize enough how tired I am. And it's not even really directed towards me so much. Just I hear it so much, this narrative that, oh, you know, I'm not in the right place. I'm not, you know, I need to be married first. I need to find da da da. And I get if that's a you thing. I'm not shaming you if that's where you need to be mentally. I'm not that's not sure. But but what I'm saying is that don't make it seem like that's what the kids need. Mm-hmm. Because what the kids need is a bed. And what the kids need is love. And what the kids need is one person willing to be that unconventional person for them when there are hundreds of them in homeless shelters waiting to be placed because they've been removed from their homes, but they don't have a foster home to go to. And so I definitely adopt the view and really encourage anyone else that's thinking about you know, adopting or fostering during an unconventional time to consider just how urgent the need is and just how, you know, in an urgent situation like this, how unnecessary it is to wait for the right or perfect time. Mm-hmm. And we really as a nation are desensitized to the crisis. And I always try to get people to understand it through the lens of what if your neighbor's house was on fire? Would you walk right. past it and say like, oh, I'm just not qualified. I'm not a firefighter. You know, I, I'm not in that season where I can support this fire. Right. Hopefully you would grab a hose and just go, yeah. you know, and hopefully you would just and nobody would be asking you as you were running towards the fire if you were qualified because it would be a community effort to do what everybody could do. And in foster care, 
I personally believe that children not having homes or love or a parent figure to, you know, walk them through the darkest season of their life is more pressing than a house on fire. Mm. And yet we treat it and we have adopted this very relaxed, almost non-spoken, it's just a part of our culture. How often do we hear foster care or the crisis that it is talked about in pop culture, in you know the media, in podcasts, in what it's almost a very secondary thing. But there are hundreds of thousands of kids who need homes, and that's something that is not lost on me. So when I got approved, not only was my social worker, you know, not only did she happen to be really supportive of me, she was also a fierce advocate of this view. You mm-hmm. know, she was someone who really was so excited to have anybody stepping up, let alone somebody who she, you know, saw as qualified to do the work and to do it well. And so, and that's another side note too. There are a lot of bad foster parents Mm -hmm. and that's really sad. And that's Mm -hmm. a whole, you know, a whole thing. But um, anyways, I, because of my relationship with the worker that approved me, she kind of hooked it up and she connected me with all the right people and all the right social workers and gave Mm. me a huge, you know, support network to get started. And 24 hours after I was approved to be a foster parent, Oliver came home. Wow. So what was the timeline from start to, from, from start to then? So getting when you first had that call, 13 months. Okay. Because getting approved takes a long time in San Diego. It takes anywhere from like four to 13 months being the longest that I've heard of um, in around the nation. Okay. And I want to be really clear to people. Every single county has its own foster system, its own, not just every single state, every single county County in every single state is totally different. And so you might, I've had friends in Tennessee, in Nashville, Tennessee, get approved in a month. Mm -hmm. And I've had friends, you know, in Los Angeles get approved in seven. I was approved in 13. This has nothing to do with how qualified you are, how anything you Mm -hmm. are. It's just purely about impact. You know, it's just the county. And San Diego is notorious for being extremely an extremely lengthy process and so much of that process is just sitting on your hands waiting for a Mm. call back Mm -hmm. because they're so overworked and they're so understaffed and so they need time to be able to get out to your house and do all the approval so it was 13 months but then once the ball was rolling and I I was approved um my you know I it was out the gate swinging um with the opportunity to bring my now three-year-old adopted son Oliver home at six weeks old So, Broads, most of you all know about my fluctuating hair struggle. So saying that I care about the shampoo and conditioner uh, I use is a huge understatement. I always want to make sure that I'm putting quality in my hair and also shampoo and conditioner that are specific to what I'm looking for. For me, it's that thickening, that protecting, that shiny. And Function of Beauty is knocking it all out of the park for me. Yes, Function of Beauty Broads. So good. Um. Yeah, and the reason Function of Beauty hair products work so well is they're customized to you. Five minutes is all it takes to get your personalized products. You start by taking a quick quiz to determine the right blend of ingredients. Then the team at Function of Beauty customizes your formula 
and they send it right to your front door. Plus, all of their formulas are cruelty-free. They don't contain any sulfates, parabens, or other harmful ingredients. And those are usually the kinds of ingredients you'll find in conventional shampoos, but not in Function of Beauty. No way. I've been using my personalized formulas for a few months now, and I'm obsessed. After taking the hair quiz, ingredients were chosen uh, for my formula that specifically dealt with, like I said, the thickening, um, also my color-treated hair because I dye it, and keeping it shiny, adding moisture. I won't lie. It's become impossible to not be running my fingers through my hair all day because in previous shampoos and conditioners, if I wanted it to be thick, I was given up that moisture, that shine. I'm able to have mm. both with or all three, excuse me, with Function of Beauty. It's it's a big deal. It's a big deal, mm-hmm. Broads. <laughs> so what are you waiting for? Go to functionofbeauty.com slash broads and you can take your four-part hair profile quiz and you'll save 20% off your first order. Go to functionofbeauty.com slash broads for 20% off and to let them know you heard about it from our show. That's a way to support us. That's functionofbeauty.com slash broads. So in the last few years, I've seen so many of my friends and family switch over to using more natural products in their home. And I've actually been trying to do that myself as well. Uh, As more and more research comes out about household chemicals and their long-term effects, I've been on the hunt for new brands to test out that don't have those ingredients. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I definitely have been making an effort to keep the products in our house um, more clean, but I totally get it. It's not easy. Um, If you need something specific, the chances of your local grocery store having it in stock are pretty slim. And even if you do find what you're looking for, sustainable, eco-friendly products that rack up your bill really fast are less than ideal. But with public goods, you'll find all the eco-friendly, sustainable, healthy household products you could possibly need in one place and the prices are accessible. And when we say public goods has it all, I mean, we mean they have it all. Everything from home cleaning solutions to dental floss to pantry staples and baking supplies. And they're all so beautifully branded in this minimalist aesthetic, which makes them, I don't know, it just makes your day a little better. It makes activities like brushing my teeth or cleaning the counters feel much more elevated, much more chic. Um, they have amazing face masks. Oh my goodness. Oh, hi. Loving that for right now. Um, Also amazing for the little ones. If you have little ones, they have amazing uh, bamboo wet wipes. Public goods, all natural version is by far the best I've ever come across. Oh, Hmm. and their eco-friendly toilet paper and the reusable food wraps. Okay, I'm done. But there's so many more. You just, you got to go online. They have, they got it all. No, Broads, because we love you. Of course, we worked out an exclusive deal just for you. You can receive $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's that's like a really good deal. Yeah. That's right. They're so confident. You'll absolutely love their products and come back again. But they're giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. You have nothing to lose. Dude, that means you can buy a $17 product for $2 with our... Co- I hope I didn't make this more complicated. Anyway, it's a good deal. <laughs> um just go to publicgoods.com slash chatty or use code chatty at checkout. That's P-U-B-L-I-C goods, G-O-O-D-S dot com slash chatty. And you'll receive $15 off your first order. No minimum purchase. Woohoo. 
Um, quick question. Did you get to choose? Did you get it? I feel like these are questions that people are going to be yeah. curious about. Did you get to choose like the ages of the children that you're going to be fostering? Okay. So yes, I, um, you always, always can, and you always can say yes or no to any specific placement. Um, and I hope that that alleviates the stress of anybody mm-hmm. that's listening and thinking about becoming a foster parent, you know? Yeah. So like if someone was like, I, for instance, don't feel like I can, uh, commit to a six week old baby. 100%. Or like, or I, I don't feel, I don't feel comfortable right now. Maybe having a six-week-old baby because right. I haven't maybe had a baby before, and I don't know. Whatever. Like, you could say there could be a situation where you can specifically, absolutely. Okay. And even if your age group on paper is zero to five, if they call you about a baby and it's not the right time for you, or you'd rather wait for, a, you know, a toddler or something, mm-hmm. they're gonna work with you. And so it's not like they're gonna call you and they're gonna be delivering the baby, whether you know you right. want it or not. Um, no, but I mean more like if you were, if someone say were to be like, hey, that this isn't necessarily mm-hmm. uh, gonna work right now or for, for me that specific age, mm-hmm. um, that then they're not like, oh, we're done with them. They're right. going to be difficult to work with. Oh, so blacklisting in <laughs> we call it blacklisting in the county. Um, it again very much varies county to county. Uh, maybe even social worker to social worker. So we're talking about you know, <laughs> I'm speaking from my own personal yeah. very yeah. customized experience. I've never personally been blacklisted, but I've also never said no to a placement. Mm, um, sure. And I've I've been very very agreeable and incredibly. Um, easy to work easy with, to work with um, there you know very quickly and I've had such a high volume of foster children at this point now um, I have my 12th little one right now um, that the social workers see my name and know that they don't need to give me any instructions it's just a very and when your job as a social worker is to place as many children as possible in yeah. a day you're going to gravitate towards sure. you know names like mine on the list because it's a check and done you know our, it's, it's not even like the Smiths who are looking for a three-year-old girl Right. right. Like, exactly. Like, well, exactly. Yeah. So I people often ask me be, like how I always get so many fresh infants. And it's because I'm extremely agreeable and because mm-hmm. I work really hard to reunify these children with their families. And I am mm-hmm. especially after having my adoptions that I'll share a little bit about before we're done. You know, I have no intention of adopting a third child like mm-hmm. at this point in the future. If I was to find a partner, if I was to get married, um, Sure, I think more kids are in my future, you know, I really do. But I just don't think that right now you could pay me in gold to adopt a third <laughs> child because I'm so good. Well, and also I'm sure this will vary like county to county and social worker to social worker, like you're saying. But I'm imagine, imagining, Jess, if you were like to say zero to five, like when you first start out, I'm guessing you could be like, like, I can't newborns aren't in my capacity like i'm i'm guessing you could like fill in your social worker right and they're not going to be as upset about you saying no to newborns as they are going to be about you constantly saying no to like three or four years because the need is so high for for that age group yes yes Uh, i'm just imagining like if one of our broads is listening and and they're like i'm i'm 21 but i don't know if i'm comfortable with a newborn Mm -hmm. like you know but yeah yeah so i um to kind of bring it back to the blacklisting thing um I've seen it happen a lot Mm -hmm. and I see it happen very specifically with families who want to quote unquote foster to adopt which I reject that term and I think that we should tell our broads to reject not that foster to adopt doesn't happen I have I I have fostered to adopt twice it it does exist but do not make that your mission yeah the the premeditated I tell people who's very specific heart is to adopt out of foster care that it might not be for them Mm -hmm. because 
that's not the goal of foster mm. care. And unfortunately, people who go into that with their that being their sole purpose, you can see that they don't service the families at the way that they should. Mm. And these families need all hands on deck and they need as much support as possible. And they need everyone in their team, including, you know, you are you are a tool in their toolbox. You are there to serve them. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very hard for people to wrap their minds around the fact that you're not in this to get a couture baby. You are in this to serve a drug addict. Right. And you, and, 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 and you work for, I mean, you don't literally work for them, but you do because you are taking care of their child, of their flesh right. and blood. And yeah. so like, well, and this plays into the saviorism thing. We're not even talking about white mm -hmm. saviorism, is saviorism anymore. That's the concept of saviorism of like, or, or I, I've, I've seen this sort of sentiment of like, well, that person got their child taken away for a reason. Oh my so God. like that parent, it, that parent is not fit. So like I can be a better parent and it's like, but that's not your child. And 100%. you see it all the time with adopting too. Like, and I'm in foster group. So I have to listen to this shit every day. <laughs> I have to read it every day and I have to refrain from starting fights on Facebook every day yeah. because the way that so many foster parents and Full disclosure, there are some amazing, not some, many amazing foster parents, mm. many of whom I'm lucky to call friends. Um, many more, you know, I don't know them, but I know that they exist. And I, I'm not shaming all foster parents. But unfortunately, there is a hearty number of them that adopt this worldview that you've shared, that you've seen, Becca. And it is very, very hard to witness. And it's very hard to read about in groups and it's very hard to be a part of when you go to support group, you know, and much you less than uh, much. I'm sure it's hard to be a parent who is put in that position mm -hmm. when their child has to be in foster care mm -hmm. for whatever amount of oh time. Be like you are unfit to ever be a parent again. Like I have seen so many of the biological parents that I've worked with this not be their first rodeo with the system mm -hmm. and they already have such a pre you know predisposition of what they think i'm going to be like mm -hmm. and they're so you know worried or scared or even just shamed to meet me and every single time they're always like what the, what the fuck <laughs> like this is not mm -hmm. what i thought it was going to be mm -hmm. you know but that's because i am fiercely fiercely pro-parent but i think that that comes from a space too of being very very comfortable and informed with what being redeemed from mental health you know mm. from mental illness looks like i'm i understand what it's like to to be able to effectively go from point a to point b mm. and i think what what when you see the worldview that you're talking about i think you're going to see in many cases it coming from communities similar or adjacent to the types of communities that we've had the opportunity to already talk about today. Yeah. yeah. And while in my like early, early, I guess, years processing some of the stuff that had happened with, you know, my experience um, where I grew up, I was really bitter towards people and I was really angry with them and I the, all I wanted to do was just like you know lash out or write a book which I am gonna write a book but um, <laughs> the book's still coming the book's still on but but all I wanted to do was kind of like be mad but now I look at it as in a community where assimilation is currency because how do you get how do you get a place at the picnic table in middle school in high school how do you you know stay friends with these people all the way through you assimilate and you assimilate and you assimilate and you assimilate so in a community where assimilation is currency you're not going to have a lot of growth and so in that way i don't understand 
how I could, in, in all fairness, be angry with these people without first acknowledging the fact that their growth is going to be substantially stunted through the lens of the fact that they don't grow mm. and that they focus more on assimilation than they do on growth. And so I've always said in places like Coronado, you either grow up or you grow into the community. Mm. And so I've had the opportunity through a lot of really hard shit to grow up. And a lot of my peers from Coronado have grown up too and they're all amazing. You know, I'm not saying everybody in Coronado is bad. I have plenty <laughs> of peers that are doing awesome shit. And a lot of us are still San Diegan and still frequent Coronado. Some of us are even in Coronado. I'm not in Coronado, but I'm, I'm there a, a lot. So I'm not saying it's, you know, Satan's stomping ground or anything right. like that. I'm, but I am saying that in this particular analogy, I bring this up because so many of these people look at these parents and, you know, these biological parents, mm -hmm. and they haven't done any growth since high school themselves. So how are they going to, in good faith, think that these biological parents can overcome addiction? Right. You're talking over about that point A to point B thing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Overcome homelessness, overcome lifelong poverty. And so they really look at it through the lens of this person is just incapable on a level that is not even worth trying mm. To, mm. to change. But what I know and what I think all of us in this room know and what I think that is only learned through a lot of really hard and raw life experience is that change can happen, but that the only true way that change can really, really happen and stick is through supportive community. Mm -hmm. And that's what we are as foster parents. There is a team in place to support these biological families and to help them sink or swim in their process. And as a foster parent, you are a part of that team and how you treat them and how you rally for them and how you support them is a huge indicator of if they're going to get their kiddos back. Mm. And so... And that is usually, like, unless a... like. From my understanding, I shouldn't talk like I know this. Um, that's like what's if the if the parent can get to be in a good place to be a good parent, a stable parent, that is what's best for the kid, not to yes. be with some other good parent. Like one hundred percent, and that's the the thing too. And I wish I could get into like my specific cases that I've had, but I, I'm. I could, but I just don't feel like live I could do sure, so yeah. well mitigating what I should and shouldn't say. Sure, sure, but sure, I've sure. had the opportunity um, just because of the volume of children that I've had. I've had the opportunity to, to see so many different kiddos. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that is I've never once seen a parent that doesn't love their child. Mm. I have never once seen that. I don't actually even believe that it's a thing. I just think that sometimes what has happened to them or what you know ever their vices are or whatever you know whatever it is trauma of their own trauma of their own them being a product of the system you know what alcoholism or drug addiction does to the mind from like you know not just a psychological level but a physiological level mm -hmm. and and what that looks like codependency on relationships domestic violence we are all very much a product of what we've been given to work with. Mm -hmm. And so never once have I seen a parent not love their mm. kids. I've seen parents not be able to get it together because in foster care, the reality is that there is a timeline. Mm -hmm. The second yeah. that your child enters care, you're on the clock now mm -hmm. and you're given a, you know, a time to get your kiddo back. 
And if you can't, your child is freed for adoption and your child is going to be adopted. That's best case scenario because sadly there are thousands of children waiting to be adopted that are free for adoption. Um, but And imagine the trauma like for a child or for the parent. I think that we do this othering thing that you sort of talked about of like, Oh, they, these are just fuck up people. They're mm-hmm. homeless people. They're addict. They're addicts. Whatever. Mm-hmm. But when you placed yourself in the position, you never know where life can take you and right. what what your what hand you're going to be dealt. And if you imagine your child being taken from you and placed with someone you don't know, mm-hmm. like a strange. If you imagine Ember or Ruth being put with like could who could be a stranger yeah. off the street, no, I'm mm-hmm. living in their home. Mm-hmm. All I'm thinking about is like, you know, when we've talked about this on the podcast before, like when I found out that I was pregnant and I have bipolar, I was panicking because I'm like, I have to get off my medication. I don't know how my body's going to react to this. And I was in a, in a, you know, a situation where I was privileged enough to have access to medicine and I could afford it, even and though it was a fucking partner. expensive. I had a, a supportive partner, a supportive family, yeah. like one thing one little difference Mm -hmm. my body i happened to have a weird fucking lucky thing happen that my body reacted well hormonally to being pregnant and breastfeeding all that if my body would have gone a different direction and i would have gone down a different path and gone into like full-blown mania that's all i'm thinking about then then my daughter like you know i would pray would be in in the hands of a loving foster parent who would have like the hope in in the hope in me Mm -hmm. that i could get like that i could you know hopefully get back 100 to a place where i could you know care for my child but it's like of course i fucking love my baby right and the thing is is that all of the parents that i've worked with are just as complex in their humanness as you are they have their own aspirations their own dreams their own you know podcasts their own passions their partners have jobs they they love their children they you know all of that but what they're diminished down to is a phone call that says hi we have a baby from a bipolar mom who can't take care of her baby and so um we just need you to come and pick up the baby from the homeless Mm. shelter right now because this mom's crazy this is what social workers will say she's bipolar and she's just not fit and so there's actually she's a major risk to her kid right now and so yeah and so what I always do which (laughs) so I recently adopted my daughter Hazel um, on September 18th so three weeks ago yesterday and I as I mentioned um, earlier I'm now done adopting. I have my my two kiddos, Oliver and Hazel, and my family is complete for right now. So I say that I am more than happy to continuing, you know, to continue fostering as long as they'll have me. So I, my philosophy as a foster parent now is kick me out, I dare you, um, <laughs> because. I have a great rapport with a lot of these social workers. I, you know, bend over backwards for this system, but I'm absolutely a fierce advocate. I'm super stubborn. I say what I say and I definitely stir the pot. I call social workers out for being bad. Mm. You know, I'm no bullshit as a foster parent, which definitely, you know, maybe one day I'm getting voted off the island. (laughs) But for right now, I'm in it. Um, But... I'm sorry, I totally lost my train of thought. What were we talking about right before that? And I'll be able to link it back. Me, bipolar, like, Yes, unfit. okay, so what yeah. I always do um, to kind of, I don't know, just spite, spite the situation is I'll hear the story about these parents and it's always horrible. And I'll call the parents. That's the first thing I do when I get their baby. Mm. And I'll say, hi, I'm Ellie. I'm your foster parent. Um, I would love to get to know you. 
Like, let's just talk. And every single time that I do that, if they've had a child in the system before, they will say that they've never had a foster parent do that. And the story, 100% of the time, is not what it was on paper. And I get the opportunity within, you know, hours of having their baby in my home Mm -hmm. to really understand the truth about what Mm -hmm. I'm working with. And, you know, people will often be dishonest at first, which is normal. And we've all done that. When have none, every one of us in this room have done that. Also, you're talking about my baby? Right. I'm like, I'm going to make myself, I am the queen of England. Like, I, you know, whatever. I've never made a single mistake. Like, you can't talk about, like, the future of my child. Yes, 100%. Yeah. But as the, I think I set the tone and I get that initial really you know that I yeah. get that. the bullshit yeah I, maybe I, a little and bit I love sometimes. that because I'm like yeah. good I'm glad I'm glad that I have the Queen of England speech and then slowly over the the course of weeks um I get the opportunity to really know these people mm-hmm. and the walls come down and oftentimes I do something another parent another thing that parents foster parents don't do that's really unconventional and also like do this at your own discretion slash with the f- support of your social workers um don't do this at home kids I do invite a lot of these families into my home based on my judgment Mm -hmm. I have an extreme gift of discernment though Mm -hmm. um, and I always have and it has never failed me in this capacity or really in any capacity that I've used it and so when I've I've had 12 total foster families and I've invited four of them into my home Mm -hmm. so I do use that discretion and that's not to say that I don't fully support the other you know families but in terms of that it's not right in that scenario right in that scenario however um these are lifelong friends of mine i don't have their babies in my care anymore but we continue to have a relationship and a rapport you know we'll call each other and shoot the shit all the time Mm. they know when i'm going on dates i know when they're going on dates (sighs) these are my friends um and that's the difference too between like the work that i was doing abroad that was so contrived and so for the sake of my own image and now is that these are my friends that so struck me when i was reading something you wrote recently because you were talking about um i don't remember if you're talking about the family members of one of your foster placements or if you're talking about one of your now adopted children but you were talking about the families and I was like, this is a narrative you literally never hear no, never. about foster parents or adoptive parents like caring, giving a shit about who the 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 biological parents are of these children. And I even contrast that with um, what is the one family who they're like influencer, super like Africa missions, really popular. Oh God, don't make me. Um, I don't even know who it is, but I'm like, oh gosh, she's gonna make me. They've, they've like called them out on No White Saviors before. It's like a beautiful blonde woman and they've like adopted Oh, a number of children from Everyone? Africa among their yeah yeah <laughs> sure so many, many. Yeah. they're sure, so many sure. this yes. one happens to have like four million followers or something like that okay but anyway, I actually don't know she made this woman made a post and she was talking about one of her adopted children from Africa being like you were my baby you were always my baby bullshit. like you have always been mine and it's bullshit. like bullshit that's not that's just straight up no like not that that, straight up no that doesn't mean that you don't love your child as your biological child that's not what that means Mm -hmm. or that they're not now like your baby but they weren't always fucking yours Mm -hmm. someone birthed that child conceived that child cared about that child loved that child Mm -hmm. amen amen that's the only time i'll say amen (laughs) (laughs) but yeah I what a fucked up like entitled view to be like this child was always mine mm-hmm. I feel like there's so much of that though if, if I'm being completely vulnerable here mm-hmm. yeah this isn't pretty yeah <laughs> no. but 
so much of that narrative not being out there, at least for me, I feel like I, I would previously have stepped into a foster situation, let's say, mm. with the mindset of, well, you do foster to adopt, right? Because that's oh, just yeah. what I've heard. Oh, 100%. So it's not that intention. But then as soon as you come face to face with someone like you, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is this. It, this makes complete sense. This is this is right. But but when you have this narrative that, that you've then heard and I'm thinking about even like even that, like that you've always been my child, like for my so my little sister's adopted. OK. Um, and it was um, a situation where her birth mom, my mom used to actually babysit her birth mom. Oh, so it was like it was a family relationship kind of. Mm-hmm. And, and, and she contacted us when she was pregnant. And she was we 17. We call that a nephrom, a non-related extended family member. Oh, I like, I that. like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, she was a nephrom. Then and she reached out to my my family when she, cause she got mm-hmm. pregnant when she was 17. And um, and and. She, we were able to adopt my sister, like, and and right out of the hospital, we had her. But there is that part where you go, yeah, of course, as the the, the sister or the the parents, it's like, this is, she is ours. This is mine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then when I think about, I'm not obviously not going to say her name, but my sister's birth mom, the amount of Mm -hmm. emotional labor and trauma Mm -hmm. that this girl had to go through and harbors for the rest of her life harbors for the rest of her life pregnant in high school Mm -hmm. giving birth alone having to make the loving decision to say i'm going to give this child like like, i mean i mean and because that was what was like beneficial or worked for her at the time obviously like Mm -hmm. you know this was the the choice that she made and she like it, it and then connecting that with the this is she's always been ours it's like no she wasn't right and by I, the way i just want to say the only reason i've learned literally anything is because of instagram so <laughs> no like, no but i'm, I'm literally just, like the past few months it's no like, no and, I, and i'm that's what's saying the growth can happen like like you know all of a sudden you have uh you hear different things and it just it just kind of it makes sense yeah but there's almost that i would say even from like our family's perspective that it's like no but of course i would say she's always been ours because i love her so deeply and that's the right thing to say but it's like no but that but that's i love her she is my sister Mm -hmm. but she was not always she's not Mm. mine yes so i so both so just a little context on oliver and hazel yeah so I've, like I said, 12 kiddos, 10 of whom have all had some sort of a reunification story, uh, two of whom I am a, the adoptive mother of. Um, wow. All, all, yes. And so that, that's what happens when you support these families. Wow. No, I don't want to. I don't want to. That was there are so many extenuating circumstances. Sure. And sure. I but yeah. it plays a factor. Um, Having someone who believes in you and supports you, who's also taking I mean, I just think like, sorry to keep harping on this, but if you're already someone who's struggling with like your mental health or with addiction or whatever might be going on in your life, and then you have the added stress of like not going on, being Mm -hmm. disconnected from what's happening with your Mm -hmm. child is going to send you into a fucking spiral. I don't care who you are. And I will say though, to be fair, I have some some friends and I know this is the the story for some people is that they've bent over backwards Mm. To try to do reunification sure. and it just didn't happen for the parents. Yeah. And so there are always exceptions. And I know that those people did everything mm-hmm. right in terms of attempting reunification. And unfortunately, when you have, you know, 
elements especially when it comes to drug addiction Mm -hmm. sometimes it's just not something that can be overcome and so and sometimes there are other situations in the system at play too that that so far transcend what a foster parent can do Mm -hmm. that ultimately the child does end up being adopted and so I want to speak to that scenario as well and be sensitive to that scenario Mm -hmm. as well while still really advocating that our baseline should be unconditional support Mm -hmm. And then just hope, you know, we shoot yeah. for the moon, we land among the stars type thing. But with Oliver and Hazel of, you know, their cases were incredibly unique, not just. Um, I mean, there's so many reasons why they were unique, but but they really were unique in the sense that I go as far to, t- to tell people that don't look at my family and say, I want to foster based on what I'm seeing here, because it's just so unhealthy to think that that's what foster care is. I don't know why things happened as smoothly as I say smoothly because of course in my mind the first word if I'm being vulnerable that I want to use is perfectly but there's nothing perfect about what happened there's nothing perfect about two babies having to live with someone that isn't their biological Mm. family that's not perfect so what I would say is smoothly that you know for things to have happened as smoothly as they did with with very minimal hiccups very minimal um you know, back and forth, if you will, that, mm-hmm. that often happens with foster care. Um, I don't know why. And I don't, I definitely don't know why it happened twice. Because some people wait 10 years for mm-hmm. a story like Oliver's, let alone being placed with, I was placed with Hazel the day after Oliver's first birthday party. And um, they're a year and 10 days apart. And wow. so, and so I... 100 percent on how it happened twice and you were with hazel it was like the day she was born yeah wasn't she it? came home at 23 hours old wow. and so she yeah she was born saturday and she came home sunday morning or sunday afternoon um but i got the call about her sunday morning and so but with oliver his case was basically i took custody of him for three months, we didn't hear anything from parents. It was almost like borderline abandonment situation going on because we didn't really have any contact with parents. Three months later, mom popped up. Um, we did some visits together. And then she actually asked me to adopt him, which, again, that does not happen in foster wow. care. And so and there are a lot of, of reasons why she asked me to do that, that I'm I'm going to leave off, you know, because obviously sure, it's her story. But she explained everything to me and and asked me wow. and I said yes. And we started that process. And then obviously there's the other component, which is that she, you know, in my mind, I'm like, OK, yes, this is my my dream of dreams because I've fallen so madly in love with this baby. Mm-hmm. However, there's obviously other family. Right. You know, I wasn't getting my hopes too high up. But because I was being realistic about there's no way that this mom can just like sign, seal, delivered, you know, that's it. Yeah. But it ended up being that she it, it ended up working out and it ended up that there was no family that came forward. And I don't again working out. There's a lot of language that is so hard to undo when mm. you've been washed in it. And I mm-hmm. think you guys probably doing this podcast I don't know how you don't I think about that sometimes listening to podcasts in general, but then listening to you two specifically be here and be talking about these topics and be trying to unwash these. We we <laughs> we it's you hello to every episode where we fuck up and people mm-hmm. are like, Hey, <laughs> this oh, is yeah, the no. way to say this. And or you're that. like, Oh shit, and you just you fall into that language and it's right, yeah, because, you're to constantly Because when you're washed in a certain yeah. ideology, yeah, it's your vernacular. Yeah. It's you know, so but anyways, that's just, yeah. So the the reason it all came together um, in the sense that there were no family members coming forward and I was able to adopt him. And 
in the sphere of foster adoptive situations, that was incredibly smooth. His mom is a friend of mine. I consider her mm. a sister. Mm. Um, and we have an amazing relationship. And I hope that in her own time, because she's asked for you know us to have a good relationship, but she doesn't want a lot of involvement with Oliver's, so I hope that in her own time, I dream of having holidays together. Mm. Some people, that's their biggest fear, you know, sure. adopting. That's their yeah. biggest fear is that they would have to share their child with, you know, their adopted child with their biological family at some point. That is my biggest dream. Mm. And so... But anyway, so that was, you know, my situation with Oliver. And then with Hazel, her situation was incredibly unique. And in that I think they someone told me that it was like the some social worker told me it was the first time in like 10 years that this had happened. But basically she was the closest thing to a safe surrender baby that you can be, mm. you know, safe surrender babies, mm -hmm. babies that are essentially just dropped off at the hospital or, you know, the fire station or whatever. Um, her mom delivered her at the hospital. So in that sense, she wasn't necessarily safely surrendered, like in a, you know, in a box, sure. she didn't come, yeah. you know, in, yeah. a, in a basket, but her mom um, took out her IV and left the hospital very soon after giving birth. And she, it was crazy because I'm not going to, you know, her mom is from somewhere else in, in California and well, she's not from somewhere else in California, but she was living in some, from somewhere, you know, somewhere else in California at the time. And she came down um, with some friends or I don't really know how the story goes, but to go to SeaWorld with um, when she was 36 weeks pregnant. So she felt like, you know, she had a little bit of time before she was going to have Hazel and she delivered here. So if she had not decided to go to SeaWorld that day, and that's another thing too, is like, yes, these people go to SeaWorld. These people are normal. I mm -hmm. think that like people don't understand like these people have lives, they have jobs, they have aspirations. They like to go out, you know, out on the weekends. They like to mm -hmm. go to SeaWorld. They like to go to Legoland. They like to do all these things. Yeah. Where so many people, I think because we vilify mm -hmm. biological parents so much, we don't even think of them as anything else but addicts. You know, you can be an addict and go to SeaWorld. It's shocking, yeah. I know, but you can. But like, that's something that I've had people say to me, like, SeaWorld? What was she doing at SeaWorld? Like, the only place addicts live is like A under bridges or, or something. Like, right. You know, and so I don't exactly know how it all came together, but because she delivered and went ahead and left um, the hospital in San Diego, Hazel was put into foster care in San Diego. And what was so crazy is that my grandma's name is Hazel hmm. and that I had always, since I was very little, was going to name my daughter Hazel. And this was her given name. And when she left the hospital on account of the nurses, the nurses said that she left the hospital. But they didn't really know what she was doing. And she literally just she didn't write the name Hazel down anywhere. She didn't do anything. She just kissed her. And then the nurse was like, oh, like what, had a little conversation with her for a second. The nurse did. And she said, this is Hazel. And Ugh. she just left. Um, and that was the only thing that she ever did was name her Hazel. And like, this was going to be my daughter's name. I already knew that. And that's a very unique name, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so she left and they called me and I came in and got the baby. And when the second that they were like, we have a baby, her name is Hazel. I was really falling down the mountain of trying to be that supportive reunifier, you know, like I, I was like, you're like, oh God, here we go. Yeah, I was it's like, be because I felt in my mind, like, you know, the universe, God, whatever it is to you, just be like, this is your daughter. And in hindsight, I think, I think if that's coming from an incredibly safe place, that it's okay. What I don't like 
is, especially in Christian culture, the overuse of of that God told me I've been called and where you're just like bullshit. You have not been called. God did not tell you that. Um, I think that that's really sensitive too because people will be like, how can you tell me what God told me? Right. But it's like, because bullshit, you know, and we see that narrative so much around the white saviorism too. Mm -hmm. We see so much God called me. It's been put on our hearts. It's been knit into our story. All of this, um, you know, really fancy language around the exploitation of children or around the, you know, all of, you know, any sort of white savior stuff. And so that's tricky for me to even admit that I had a moment like that. And I think we all do in life. That's human. A moment where we're like, fuck, this feels divine. You know, fuck, this feels like, and I had that moment driving to the hospital Mm. of like, this is my daughter. And it was. And she came home and there was no, mom never came back. There was no anything. Like it just, was an adoption and again that does not happen in foster care there was no visitation there was no contested anything there was no family that came forward it was just an adoption Mm. and so that was well on the one hand it's really easy to be oliver and hazel's mom and not have to grapple with a lot of guilt that i know that other uh, you know adoptive moms through foster care do have to grapple with and and that's not any fault to them that's just the fact that they have a situation in their home where their kiddos you know their parents their biological parents fought for them and they lost mm. and that's the most common narrative in foster care i have been incredibly incredibly fortunate to not have to to deal with that sort of thing and it's a privilege. It is. It's a privilege to be able to just have Oliver and Hazel at home and know that I, that that's we're good. We're good. And I don't have to think about a, an ugly back and forth or whatever. But loops all the way back to what I was going to say, which is that I look at and and very openly call Oliver and Hazel's moms my sisters. Um, mm-hmm. And I say like, the, and we call them tummy mamas. They're their tummy mamas. Mm-hmm. And so we say, oh, that's your tummy mama, you know. Um, oh, that's such a beautiful way to put it. Um, but these are like, I've never met Hazel's mom. I don't even know what she looks like or anything, but she's my sister. And in that sense, anytime she wants to come home to us, she's mm-hmm. welcome. There's a seat at the table for her. Um, and Oliver's mom knows that. You know, like yeah. that's just a given. And so I think in that way that like I've heard before and I, I like it, but I don't like it. Um, I've heard the phrase that adoption is like a marriage and less like, you know, having a biological baby. And I I, I don't I like it. I'm going to say I like it. I like that because it is true. You know, it's the marrying together of two families, um, of, of two worlds, of two, you know, different people that would have never crossed paths before and making it work and honoring that there is, you know, mess in the middle of trying to make, you know, families mesh and all of that. But at the end of the day, I am someone who really sees the world through a, you know, no fence, longer table mentality. And so there's always room at the table for whoever wants to come and be a part of our life that is connected to my children. Well, and I would like, I know with my family for any like, person any people who are you know wanting to adopt and are afraid of what you're saying like oh my god opening my home Mm -hmm. what how are my adopted children gonna Mm -hmm. feel all this Mm -hmm. um when we because um my sister's bio mom you know uh came to my family and asked us to adopt my sister Mm -hmm. um 
we said we would love to have, and I'm so grateful that my mom at the time had like the the uh, concept of, of this. She's like, I, I know you, you're part of the family. Like mm-hmm. we want you around. And so when she was pregnant, she slept in bed with me, which was yeah. so cool. Cause I was like, I got to like slip, like it was part sleep of the family. Yeah. I just sleep next to my sister. And like, and then after she was, uh, after my sister was born, we had for probably two years, a relationship where, um, you know, uh, the bio mom was coming over like during mm-hmm. holidays and like hanging out all the time. And now, you know, she decided for herself and her own mental health that she needed to move yes. on with her life and have her own family. And she's, you know, she's doing so well and yes. she's great. And now, you know, she's not involved. Um, and obviously it's her choice. And anytime she wants to come back, we're like, please. But I will say it, in fact, did the opposite for me as like I was 13 when my sister came around and I was so freaked out being like oh my god there's this new kid and I'm like mm-hmm. what, what's going on it was the opposite because it felt like my sister immediately became family yes. because her bio mom became part of our family yes. it felt like more of a community than just mm-hmm. like yeah I don't it's it's hard to describe but it's 100 percent. I think that the best thing that we can do for these kids is be open to it again with the discretion that sometimes of you course, know, sadly, people are dangerous. Of Sometimes course. people are really mm. sick. And we yeah. have as adoptive parents, our first responsibility is to protect our children. And so I say all of this, you know, from that from that space in my head of this should be our baseline. This should be our best practice. Mm-hmm keeping in mind that sometimes we have to make hard decisions because the world is broken and because people are broken, you know? And so, but at the end of the day, there are so many stories like the one you just shared and like, you know, our family where there's so much redemption at the hands of just extending, you know, yes, come and join. And it's, it's not this, I think too, it's this huge middle finger to what's drilled into our mind of an acceptable, an ex acceptable family dynamic which is a mom and a dad and two kids Mm -hmm. and we're all walking around and we're married and we got married before we had our kids and we you know the american family is no longer the american family anymore because so much has changed and because Mm -hmm. every day you know unconventional family types are being born but so many of us are still rooted in that dogma and are still rooted in that you know feeling like Ooh, I don't something deep in me that probably I don't even believe or subscribe to anymore is feeling some type of way when I don't see when I see a family that's not conventional. Mm-hmm. Right. You like know? our neighbor Betsy's gonna ask why she's over. Right, <laughs> like, exactly. Don't you just what do you want to confuse your child? Like right, you know, that exactly. type of thing. <laughs> and there's just like and that Yeah. And so I all the way from my earliest days in elementary school up through, you know, the the tragedy that was my teenage experience into now have never been conventional. And I think that um, in pursuit of being conventional and in pursuit of kind of like fixing my reputation and everything is where I have seen myself be most inauthentic. Mm-hmm. You know, when I, anything that I did in pursuit of like, oh, if I do this, I wonder if like I'll get some of my reputation back or whatever has been my most inauthentic self. Anything that I do that is me just telling it like it is or me Mm. just embracing my unconventional, embracing the mess that is, you know, pieces of my life has been where I find myself to be most authentic. And I think that when you are most authentic, you are doing the most for, you know, you, you are offering 
what you can offer to the world because we're not supposed to be liked by everybody. I know that broads have talked about this and, you know, um, this is something that I think broads can appreciate this, this conversation, which is that we're not supposed to be liked by everybody. And yet so much of life is trying to remind ourselves of that and Mm -hmm. being our most authentic selves, Mm -hmm. being vulnerable, being, you know, candid about everything. And then realizing that doing that is going to invite a tremendous opportunity for you to find your people and to, you know, do what you want to do in life. But it's also going to leave you vulnerable to Mm. maybe having people that don't like you or that think that you're a little bit odd for doing that. But then you see, you know, I remember seeing your, your, Instagram bio everybody oh, yeah. makes mistakes I just make them in public mm-hmm. and I was like fuck yeah it's like, a Kanye West quote oh shit <laughs> <laughs> it's a great quote it's you tweeted quote. it and I was like wow so yes it's okay <laughs> Kanye this just one like, time yeah. one time we're gonna quote Kanye West hey, Kanye has some bangers and he has yes. some not so bangers you know stronger ain't that, ain't that stronger. life stronger I will never give that up <laughs> I don't care I don't care I will never give up stronger by Kanye West but you know what that's the thing we're all complex beings, mm-hmm. right? You're going to say some fucked up shit. You're yes. going to say some mm-hmm. hard truths. That's life. Yes, but I think mm-hmm. that that was one of the first times that I saw like an influencer that I was interested in getting to know mm-hmm. or interested in, you know, following and learning from say something like that. And I was like, yeah, everybody makes mistakes. Like, <laughs> wait, who sings that? Who, everybody he, makes mistakes. Everybody, ha- Hannah Montana. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody has those days. <laughs> Everybody knows what, what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, yep. so... Oh, my God. Good old Miley. <laughs> Miley never fails. Miley doesn't ever fail. Never fails. No. She is the queen of the castle, mm-hmm. of all the castles. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that is, you know, that's how we got to present day. That's how we built my family in this really... And it was interesting because I remember I had to get a therapist note when I was doing my foster care thing Mm. because there was stuff in my history and you know um and that's stuff that happened you know that's something that I think you're you would be interested in because you said that you had thought about maybe having yeah growing your family or whatever yeah you can get a therapist note and I have a team of therapists that keeps the wheels on this bus (laughs) (laughs) who fully believe that I am the best parent for my Mm. children Mm. and who fully believe that I am you know and there's so many there's so much stigma around like what makes a good parent, what makes a qualified parent, what in your past should, you know, disqualify, disqualify yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just like, leave that to the professionals, leave that to the professionals. But the ther- the social worker who loved, you know, the one I had talked about really advocating for me and, and loved me at our initial meeting when she asked for that, um, you know, she said, okay, well, you know, given what you've shared with me in our psychosocial, I'd love to just like hear from your therapist and make sure that this is a good fit. And, um, also, you're 21, so you need to make sure. No, I'm kidding, but that was definitely the vibe. And so um, when I got, you know, all my my stuff together and, and finished the packet of material that needed to be submitted, she was like, okay, you know, I'm going to ask you a few questions. And they always say, these are just fun questions. We just want to put them in your chart. But like one of the questions was like, what do you think, you know, is going to make you a good foster parent? And I remember sitting there thinking, because of everything that I've been through, mm-hmm. Because I see myself as someone who has gone from point A to point B. Because I see myself as as just as imperfect as someone who has struggled with addiction, someone who has struggled with mental you know, illness. I am an example of someone who 
the reality is I am one step of white privilege away from being someone who killed herself or someone who is crazy and cracked out on the streets myself to cope with my mental illness. The only reason why that didn't happen to me, and that's not my story, is because I had supports in place, because I had people that were willing to take me into their guest house in San Francisco, because I had a childhood savings of $2,500 to drop on a camera, because I had the social and assimilation skills that I learned in that community to be able to build a business. These mm-hmm. are the reasons why I was able to survive something that was that would never be survivable in other climates. Mm. Um, and so when I look at the families that I service, and I do look very much look at it as like that's our relationship as I'm working for you, I'm I'm taking care of your kiddo. Um, I don't see myself as a savior or as like, you know, something that is that's not our our relationship is not like me here, you here. Mm-hmm. It's just like we're here and we're in this together, which is which is how those friendships were born mm-hmm. and how, you know, we're able to stay friends even when there's no kiddo involved in the situation. A lot of these people we talk I mean, as you talk about your, you know, we talk about our kids, but we, we also talk about ourselves a lot, you know, with our sure. friends. And so and, and so that's kind of where my relationship is with a lot of these people is just about regular stuff. And yeah. so but we're on the same plane. We're just in different places. We're just in different yeah. places. Mm-hmm. And we're all one single thing away from being in that position. Sure. You know, and that's what you were talking about, too, is like if you had been one, one, one little thing, little thing yeah. away from being oh. and that in that way, we're all each other's keepers mm-hmm. and we all belong to each other and we're all just walking each other home. And that is the biggest thing. And so now I know we're probably rounding this out soon. And so now that Hazel's adopted and Oliver's adopted and I'm kind of just hanging out in foster care until they kick me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, and I, I'm, you know, I am 24 and I've gone through more grief and loss and change and world stuff than a lot of people go through in their whole life. And I'm ready to fuck shit up. <laughs> I am so excited for this chapter of my life. Mm. I have never... There was a, there's a lot that, you know, I obviously you can't share and everything in an hour and a half, but there's a lot that I didn't share, but there was so much of my life in the last 10 years that I never thought I would be functioning, even let alone happy. And in the last six months I have turned a corner and I'm, I'm just stupid happy. Like I, I'm, I'm the kind of happy that like, it's like, is she lying? It's like, no, because I was lying. I was faking it yeah. and now I'm making it, you know, I, I have never been in such a good place in my life. I have found incredible friendships this past year and a half that um, have really set the tone for community that is needed to do, you know, and be all the things. I have my dream of dream children. I have all the plans in the world. And yeah, so it's it's mm. definitely a, a very different season that I'm in now but I appreciate everything that I've been through so much looking towards the future because at 24 like you have your whole life ahead of you but I've also I feel like I can appreciate that because of all that I've been through you Mm -hmm. know whereas a lot of people at 24 they're maybe not quite ready to look at life as like for what it is is super valuable and super amazing but I think it's only up from here so I'm very excited amazing Well, thank you so much for sharing like so much of your vulnerability yeah. and just your experience and everything. I do want to ask, 
What are some resources for people to get started? Like where to begin? Yeah. If you are interested in fostering. Right. So I think that um, the the foster crisis is an all hands on deck deal, meaning that even if you don't want to foster or you're not in a place to bring your kiddos, you know, a kiddo into your particular home, it doesn't mean that you can't be an asset to foster parents. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that you can't be an advocate for foster children. So there are a lot of ways to get involved with the, you know, even just through advocacy that if you look at the foster system and say, oh, like I can't foster, it doesn't mean that you are, first of all, it doesn't mean you're absolved from talking about the foster crisis Mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean that you can just look the other way, but also just know that you don't have to do it in the way that I've done it. You could become a CASA, which is a case appointed. My special, mom does that. Yeah, yeah. a case appointed special advocate, which basically is someone that get, you get assigned to one child at a time. In most counties, it's one child at a time. Or siblings. And, or like, siblings, yeah, my mom yes. has three mm-hmm. siblings. Yeah, siblings. Yeah. Um, I guess I should say one case, not one yeah. child. One case at a time in most um, in most situations. And they, you basically just advocate for them. You get to know them. You take them on trips every month. You have a certain amount of time with them. And you are their biggest advocate in the courtroom, which is really amazing. So Mm. being a a CASA would be a great thing. Um, Finding and connecting with the foster family in your area and offering to bring them dinner. You know, if you could get four people in on it to bring a foster family dinner once a week, you would have you would have dinner covered once a week for a month. Mm -hmm. Foster parents need support and finding foster families, you know, and loving them well and offer just dropping off a pack of diapers or a pack of wipes on their thing, offering to do free childcare for a parent so that they can go out. All of that could be super valuable. And could then, you do respite so you, as well? So that's a gray area, and it depends county okay. to county because there are different rules for how you know how you can leave your children in different counties. Mm-hmm. In um, San Diego, it's up to the discretion of the foster parent for up to twenty four hours. Meaning that it's you know there's a word for it, and I'm blanking out, but it's it falls under that category mm-hmm. of it's your discretion. And then anything after you know twenty three hours and fifty nine minutes, you need to have had them with uh if it's consecutive with someone who is either a fellow foster parent or a licensed respite provider right and so you can provide respite at least in san diego for a couple of hours here and there um in the counties where they're a little bit more stringent and they require that anybody that's left with the foster child be you know fingerprinted and 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 looked at then you could offer to that family and say you know hey i'd love to help you out how do i get approved to help you and normally it's just a quick process of doing maybe a phone interview and a fingerprint and then you're good to go and you can be that you know a point of contact for them mm-hmm. which is super invaluable and then um, if you are interested in actually fostering typically the way that it goes is there is an orientation in on some level in san diego it's actually called orientation it might be called something else somewhere else but what it is is you're just getting to understand how it works and so find out where in your county you know people foster through do they foster through the county do they foster through an agency um go to them call them on the phone and the best thing that you can do is ask how do i get started Mm -hmm. because i get every single day a dm at least once a day that says how do i get started (laughs) and i try to answer them as best as i can but the reality is is that i don't know how you get started in your county Mm -hmm. and so call them and it is their day job to say this is how you get started Mm -hmm. you know so they'll give you all the information that you need typically the timeline will look like is doing an orientation class and then going um 
through some classes, like some formal training classes, CPR, first aid, um, a psychosocial analysis where they can see if you're a good fit, you know, emotionally, and then a, a home, you know, evaluation as well to make sure that your home has everything that is necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the placement process ensues. So, so that's what it looks like to, to foster. But again, I cannot stress enough just go ahead and call um, and be your own advocate. And they make it, in most cases, incredibly low-hanging fruit. They want anybody to be able to come and find it. And so just a quick Google search should be able to start your process. Um, in, in San Diego or even here in LA, if you're local, um, that the process that I've just explained is exactly what you can expect. Other where it might be a little bit different. Wow. Well, thank you. Okay. And before, again, before we leave you, little birdie told me (laughs) that you are starting your own podcast that is coming out in a couple months. Yeah. Can you tell the broads about it? And by the way, broads, when it does come out, we will be posting about it. So you can mark your calendars, but we'll make sure to post about it as well. I I really appreciate it. Oh, and share your socials too. Oh my goodness. Uh, So for a second, I thought you meant like my brain because we're like in this (laughs) mode, went social security and I was like, huh, funny. (laughs) My last four are. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like in the zone of like, So I am December 1st uh, launching Nobody's Damsel, which is a clap back to every lie princess culture has ever told us for every girl the shoe never fit. Um, And so I am definitely going to be acting my age. I'm going to be so much of the last few years has been me really acting like I'm a 35 year old woman, you know, um, for a lot. And you know, if you are a 35 year old woman, I love you, but I, I just, I didn't get to live out my twenties. Sure. And so I'm reclaiming that a little bit. And some of that is just getting into good trouble with friends. Some of that is dating. I'm dating now, yeah. which I never, I went through some shit and I honestly thought I was never going to date and I'm dating. I'm dating. Yes. Um, which is crazy. And I'm liking it, which is even crazier. Um, but some of so that's some of that is what I'm doing. But I'm also to really act my age. I'm starting a podcast that is geared towards, you know, my interest. And it's not just mm. and we we all know how it goes when we have the kids on social media. It's like, do we even post about ourselves anymore? Totally. You know, it's just people all, like the kids more. People like the kids. <laughs> they love the kid content. And of course, I can't have a podcast and not talk about my kids, of but course. it's not going to be kid centered. <laughs> so it's going to be very cultural commentary like broads is and it's going to be we're going to talk about mental health and we're going to talk about relationships and modern dating and we're going to talk about you know all of that and so it's going to be fun and we're gonna yeah and so it's coming out december 1st and it's i'm excited so excited yeah and i hope that it kind of gives me a good outlet to be able to do you know all the stuff that i've been waiting yeah you know post-adoption to be able to do yeah Good for you. Um, and then my yeah, so my Instagram is just my name. It's Ellie Coburn. It's uh, a good follow. Oh, <laughs> uh, good photos naturally, and but also good words too. How, how do you spell it for us, just so we know? Oh Sorry. yeah, it's Ellie E L L I E Coburn C O B U R N. Amazing. And then so yeah, that I mean that's all, folks. It's just it's. <laughs> wild to be and i i appreciate because becca had messaged me back in august and holy shit this last two months has been i know so oh, fast. i know 
I know because um, it felt like we had booked so far out and I then now like, here yeah. we are but like I that said to you I said I'm gonna have more tea if you wait a couple months and you and you were like yeah no no worries like oh, we'll do it in October but um it's definitely weird to be on the other side of the adoption mm. and just be in this place of like what the hell am I gonna do next you know yeah yeah well guys the limit Sky, Sky is the is limit, limit and yes. so grateful for you coming on and letting all of us know this was like really, really, really helpful yeah. and insightful. And I know this is going to be and, really you know, impactful for a lot of our listeners. I know that my story is incredibly novel. You, like, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a niche story for sure. And we haven't even scratched the surface of it. But it's what I don't want is for, you know, the the uniqueness of my story to, to lose in translation the um the first of all the overarching themes but also just the fact that anyone can be involved in being an advocate for the stuff that we talked about mm-hmm. being an ad- advocate for you know not doing white saviorism being an advocate Absolutely. for um for foster kids and for adoption and for ethical adoption and for all of the things you know and I think that so much of my experience with fostering and choosing to to do so publicly, because not everybody does that, you know, mm-hmm. not everybody does so on a platform, has been trying to find like my niche audience mm-hmm. and realizing that there isn't one. I'm kind of creating mm-hmm. one. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm creating a niche audience. Yeah, because- so too, because I know that a lot of your followers are like this more white Christian demographic. Mm-hmm. Like, and I've noticed... This is a really good tangent. Um <laughs> This is a really good tangent because when I started and I have, again, a very small following. I'm acting like I'm out here with like I have a very small following, but I would say that it's you a very, still have thousands y- of people following you. So yeah. it definitely yes. still is a number of people. Right. And like, it's, I think, too, it's a very loyal and interactive following. And I get a lot of feedback and there's a lot of community there. Mm-hmm. Um, and. The, the way that that was built out was predominantly through my foster and adoption story being shared on foster and adoption resource Instagrams, on fellow foster and adoptive mom pages. And there is in the foster and adoptive community a huge influence um, from the Christian community. Yeah. And so I would say that that's how I built a lot of my following out and there and I think in a lot of ways unfortunately it's also the expectation that mm. like I would be that way. You know, I don't really I know a handful of other other foster moms that are single i don't know anybody else that's queer oh Mm. i just outed myself (laughs) it's good timing though but um but i don't know anyone else that's queer and also except for this one couple that's coupled and they're in australia so that's as close as i've ever gotten to meeting another queer foster parent is litter and i've met them in classes and stuff never single queer and in america mm-hmm. and yeah. so there is such a it's it's such a niche and my follower a lot of my followers don't know that about me so i'm have you ever had someone come out on chatty broads mm. i don't maybe think so maybe <laughs> um, i mean like you know definitely on a public in more of a public way absolutely right but, and but so Thank you for sharing that. Yes, that's all part of the the new new year, new me. Um, <laughs> my new New Year's is Hazel's adoption. Um, like all of my resolutions, all of my everything um, is is now September eighteenth. Mm. I have adopted that because just so much has mm. been lifted off of my chest. But, mm. anyways, um, it's such a hard thing um, trying to. 
I guess, appeal to the following that I do have while also living my truth, while also trying to identify who the heck I am. Mm. Because I, as I've mentioned multiple times in the last little while, you know, I default to assimilation too. Mm. I'm guilty of it too. I was washed in it and I so often will be like, okay, well, this is clearly what they want to hear. And Mm -hmm. so I'm going to try to at least, if I'm going to say something, I'm going to say it in a way that's super nice and super consumable. And then hopefully they'll, they'll like me, Mm -hmm. you know, and hopefully Mm -hmm. they'll, you know, receive it. And that's been really good in the department of getting to talk about politics and having some really tough conversation that they're actually still tuning in for because a lot of times you can't even have those conversations or they just you lose your following completely i am definitely i'm an enneagram eight wing nine i don't know why i forgot (laughs) an enneagram eight wing nine which is known as the diplomat Mm -hmm. and so i'm definitely very diplomatic in the way that i yeah you are you're gonna be diplomatic too Mm -hmm. on your profile for Mm -hmm. sure and so but that's the the combination is the challenger and the peacemaker yeah Mm -hmm. and so i'm a super challenger but i'm also a super peacemaker and so i try to appeal to people through the lens of and i also have for better or worse, an ability to kind of see the world through everybody's lens. Mm-hmm. And so I tr- I try to give people the benefit of the doubt and everything. But yes, to answer your question, to get back to what you were saying, I definitely find myself in a position where a lot of my following is maybe a little bit more conservative or maybe a little bit um, not in the place that I am. And I have kind of found myself breaking out of that and then you know losing some, but also gaining a lot and, and creating a really niche um, audience and that's where that super communitive you know close-knit comes into play because mm-hmm. I think that everybody that is watching my stories and stuff not everybody okay but like many of the people that are watching my stories are there because they're attracted to the niche that I've built mm-hmm. but it is super hard to be not just the baby of all the foster groups I'm still in these groups and stuff like our little Instagram breakout messages. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Like, well, you yeah, have yeah. like messages um, that you send, and I'm still in them. But I'm the baby, and I'm the Democrat. <laughs> yeah. I'm the and I'm the, um, the young the single liberal. One. I'm yeah. the young liberal single San Diegan, and a lot of these families are like conservative in Texas, Arizona, the Midwest, and they love me, and they've taken it in stride. And some of these women have. Uh, unexpectedly becoming some some of my best friends Mm, but and they know they know who I am I've held nothing back and they still have and anytime because they definitely have to pander to that very specific audience but I'm like I see you I have Mm -hmm. talked to you on the phone until 2 a.m. I know how (laughs) you feel about this for real (laughs) but it's fine Um, but they you know they are really supportive of, of me in that way and I've had very little pushback from kind of the core community because there is a foster mom community on social media and that's who I'm referencing. But I'm the new kid on the block. And I like that because we need diversity in this community to show that it's all hands on deck. Mm -hmm. You know, this is an all hands on deck situation. And if you can love children and love them well, and if you can provide for them, you know, a stable home and commit to filling their needs even temporarily even temporarily that's what we need you don't need to fit this model you don't need to 
you know, have this belief system. I have literally had people send me messages and like sometimes I'll do Q and A's like, do you need to be Christian to foster? Mm-hmm. Like that's how like, yes. far <laughs> infiltrated. Wow. This, the, you know, the, going back to what you had said is that it's just kind of your baseline to think that foster to adopt is a thing or your baseline right, to think that right. because that's how far infiltrated the narrative is. And Becca, you talk about how you've been so impacted by, you know, learning about foster care on Instagram and that's been your only source of content Literally and information. Only. Yeah. So let's just say that you hadn't found my account, but you found like 15 accounts that were just, you know, white, Christian, middle-aged, married women. That would be your perspective and perception of what foster yeah. looks like. Yeah, I mean, like. I followed a few of them mm-hmm. and then it was like, okay, yeah, it all looks one way. And it's not that that's bad. Again, some of those are my dear friends. It's that it doesn't, I look at that and I don't see myself. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. You know? Doesn't, yeah. And, and then so, so other people seeing it too are like, this doesn't reflect who I am. So can right. I be a part of this? Right. right. And so it is an all hands on deck thing. And, um, but rounding that out, um, it has been a process to figure out, you know, who is a good fit for a following. And it's been an act of, a lot of letting go in my department of like, hey, you know what? These people might not be for me and that's okay. Or I'll sometimes see, I don't know if you get this. I, oh my gosh, I would love to talk to you about this. Um, or even you, because you have a, a pretty large platform too. Do, Still small, but. Do you ever get like a follower and you're just like, you're not going to like it here? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> sure. 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 Yeah. And you'll just see the bio and you're like, Okay. <laughs> yeah. Prepare to be triggered. You're not going to like this totally. at all. But then that's the <laughs> beautiful thing about online community yeah. is because then you get messages from people who you might make that assumption about mm-hmm. and they're like, I really appreciate like Fair. what yeah. you True. say or what Absolutely. I've learned. And then that's like, and, that gives me hope. I'm like, oh, I'm making assumptions. And that's like, so true because it's like at the end of the day, if I'm being straight, like, you know, six, seven years ago, I was that person who was going to go on to yes, account that I was yes. going to fucking bat back mm-hmm. with my like very strict evangelical beliefs. Oh my God, my I could talk to you guys about this literally all day. Yeah. Like, but, but now yes. I'm like, so I'm like, please, I know you're not going to like this, but like, come on yeah. and like try Enjoy. to try to grow with me because I've got a fucking lot that I can <laughs> well, yeah, and we'll, and we'll inform each other, you yeah. know, it's like, yeah. right. Cool. No, I totally get that. But I mean, last week I got a follower that was like, God first and then she had a blog that was like wives submit to your husband and I was like you're not gonna like it here <laughs> it's gonna go so well it's just not gonna go well I was like <laughs> okay well guys I gotta round it out because I gotta go pick up a vintage yes, couch and I have, oh. I have a client at 5.30 yes. in San Diego I'm gonna um, go you know watch some reality TV. <laughs> yes <laughs> but with that thank you so much again Ellie thank you so um, much thank Ellie thank you guys I so really really appreciate, appreciate it um, as well this is really niche this is really out of my element but it's also um i think a big old cheers to the next chapter and cheers yes cheers Um, thank you so much and becca thank you for in the last year or so this is this was not 2020 was weirdly my year which everybody's (laughs) like that's bold dude Uh, i i've loved it too for very personal reasons yeah yeah, yeah. i'm very sensitive to the climate right now and all of it's going on but But in your personal life we're allowed to personally benefit or enjoy a year like we're allowed to do that yeah been thriving in 2020 but 2019 (laughs) shittiest year of Mm. my life you could not pay me to go back to 2019, Mm. worst year of my life. And um, in 2019, that's when we connected. And you randomly, among, you know, a few other people talk about social media and how it's sometimes a lifeline. Having you just like in the comments sometimes, I was like, yes, like Mm. I appreciate that. And I know that that's, 
you know, some sometimes silly and sometimes it's elevating you. In some ways, it's elevating you to like, you know, influencer status or whatever. But I appreciated that someone who, um, you know, had a lot to say about a lot of the same interests that we have was able to like, you know, comment or like my stuff. I was like, wow, this is Absolutely. a horrible year, but Becca <laughs> Martinez is here. So it's fine. Um, yeah, no, it's been, and just the, the advocacy that I felt from you and just you hyping me up and everything. And so thank I've learned you. so much from you. It's literally why I gave you a follow. I was like, I have not seen this perspective. I have so much to learn from this person. Mm. And you know, I aspire to hopefully one day, you know, be the the fraction of the foster mom that you are. So this is a lot more about you than it does about me. Well, (laughs) anyways, I am grateful and I'm grateful for the, you know, the unconventional friendships that are social media friendships. All right. With that broad, it's a pleasure. (laughs) It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you you so much. All right, broads. Chat soon. Chat soon. Uh